Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. And as you walked south down that alley, you say you heard voices. Sure. Now, the first voice that you heard, uh, how did you describe that voice yesterday? It was, uh, hey, 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 three times. Okay. And did you say that that voice sounded like the voice of a young man? It was a clear voice, yes. It sounded like a clear voice. Okay. Did the voice sound like the voice of a young man? I don't know how young that could be. <laughs> Oh, well. Can I answer? Yes. No, the answer, the answer, he's given an answer. Okay, I didn't hear it. I'm sorry. Shall I? Didn't you tell us yesterday that the voice was a youthful voice? Yeah, it sounds like a young, young voice. Okay. And when you heard that voice, you thought that that was the voice of a young white male, didn't you? Oh. Well. Overruled. Council overruled. Sit up. The way the question was phrased, if there's a question or a statement that was made that says that, that's an appropriate question, Council. Proceed. Voice sounded like the voice of a white male. How could I say that's a white male? I don't know the voice. Could be anybody there. Did you ever tell uh, Mr. Stevens, my investigator, that it sounded like a white male? No. Never said that? I don't recall that at all. I said it was a clear voice, but never what kind of uh, white or brown or yellow. And then there was that second voice, correct? Right. And that second voice, that voice sounded deeper than the first voice, didn't it? A little bit, but I couldn't couldn't hardly hear it. With the dogs, the commotion with the two dogs there, there was... It was very short. Did you ever tell anyone that the second voice was a deep voice? It was deep. It was deeper than the, the, the other, than the other ones. And that hey, hey, hey. Okay, so the second voice then was deeper than the first one. Yeah, a little deeper. Couldn't hardly hear it. It was just very short. And the second voice that you heard, did it sound to you as if the the, the person with the second voice was older than the person uh, with the first voice? Sustained. Foundation. Can you tell us whether or not the second voice sounded more mature than the first voice? Sustained. I couldn't say that. Hold on. The second voice that you heard sounded like the voice of a black man. Is that correct? Sustained. Sustained. Of course not. I don't. Wait. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, would you uh, step into the jury? 
Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to explain my position, Your Honor. Your Honor, in the discovery we just provided the defense, and in, in a statement Patricia Barrett uh, gave to uh, Detective Tom Lang, she told Detective Lang that Heitstra told her that he heard what sounds to him to be a young man holler, hey, hey, hey. Heitstra had then stated that he heard the very angry screaming of an older man who sounded black. And that is a good faith basis upon which I am uh, asking these questions, Your Honor. Mr. Cochran. We've never seen that statement, and I resent the reason I stood before I resent that statement. You can't tell by somebody's voice whether they sounded black, and I don't know who made that statement, whether Barrett or Lang or whoever said it, but I resent it because that's a racist statement. You can't tell by listening to someone whether they're black or white or whatever. I don't think you can tell whether somebody's young. You can tell if it's a child or not. But I, I resent that entire area, and I think it's entirely inappropriate. And we've never seen any statement of that regard. We, we, he, gave, he walked over and handed Mr. Douglas a uh, purported report from Ms. Barrett. But this statement about whether somebody sounds black or white is racist, and I resent it. And that's why I stood and objected. And I think it's totally improper. In America, at this time, in 1995, we have to hear this and endure this. I didn't make a statement, Your Honor. Well, the, the witness, court, may I say one thing, Your Honor? The court, when I had a question about how Mr. Darden conducted himself on that morning, I approached the bench before I asked in front of the jury. Because I think it, dignity and integrity would require that. But to ask that question in front of the jury, I think, was, is totally, totally improper. And that's, we had said back in chambers when this case started, to try it appropriately when there was a question, uh, a questionable area, we had promised you that we would approach the bench on those things. Didn't we not do that? We didn't. And we kept that word. And they didn't do that, Your Honor. They violated it again. And so I resent that. I've always considered the question of race in this case to be a questionable issue, Your Honor. However, this is the witness's statement, and if the statement is racist, then he is the racist, not me. Okay? I, I didn't say and clearly, racist. well, wait, well wait. I mean, but that's what you're suggesting, and that's what, you know, has created a lot of problems for my family and myself, statements that you make about me and race, Mr. Cox. Well, you and stop doing to the court. Wait, sorry. wait. I'm going to take a recess right now because I'm so mad at both of you guys. I'm about to hold both of you in contempt. We'll take 15. If I see this conduct again from either of you two, we'll take more than that. Now, like everyone, I'm sure you've heard a number of different uh, people speak. Is that correct? Yes. Older people? Correct. Sure. Young people? Children? Uh, Caucasian people? Black people, Chinese, you name it. The second voice that you heard, could you tell whether or not that second voice sounded like the voice of an older man? Maybe, what, what, what do you mean about older men? Maybe older than the other person, maybe, yes, could be. Okay. Well, was it your opinion that the, sec that the voice of the second man belonged to a man older than the voice of the first man? Could be an older man, yes. And you told Ms. Barrett that the second voice was the voice of an older man, didn't you? Yeah. You did tell her that? Okay. And were you able to determine the ethnicity of the person uh, uh, who you say uh, was the second voice? Oh, well. Uh, no, no, no. Isn't it true that you told Patricia Barrett that the 
second voice, of the, which would be the older man, sounded black? Never said that, no. Never. Never said that, ever. I couldn't hear that with the noise. Isn't it true, Mr. Heisler, that after you realized that you wouldn't be called by the prosecution, that you decided that you would do whatever you could to make sure you were called by the defense in this case? Not at all. Not at all. Well, after I visited you on May 29, 1995, yes. you telephoned the defense, didn't you? Sure, yes. And you told the defense that I had been there? Sure. And you told the defense you didn't like me very much? No, you were not very pleasant with me. Can I use that word, Your Honor? Unpleasant? Hmm? The other word. Yes, you may. You told the defense that you weren't impressed with me? Not impressed. You were not very pleasant or very cool with me. You told the defense that I was an asshole? Yes. Well, did you tell... Hold on. Why don't you confer with Mr. Cochran for a moment? Thank you. You're, you're a witness. I apologize. No, you're a witness. Uh, Mr. Darden? Yes. Uh, did you tell Patricia Barrett that you thought I was an asshole? Never, never said that at all. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Thursday. February 18, 2021. So I have been told this is our 13th study session on Jeffrey Tubin's The Run of His Life. Uh, we are picking up on the chapter Sounded Black. Now, there are many uh, highlights in this week's section of the reading, I guess, for some folks. Uh, the exchange well actually it's the title of the chapter that we're in so it's not that small uh, but this exchange that you just heard directly from the trial July 1995 Robert Heidstra uh, yeah I guess you have to check I think he would be classified as a white man although he was not born in the US I think he was born in France uh, but he was subpoenaed to testify by the defense uh, although he originally thought the prosecution would call him to testify. You hear, you heard some of that uh, in the exchange. Uh, poor Chris Darden. Uh, he has been uh, called an Uncle Tom, a sellout, a racist, a race traitor, uh, and now uh, even inquiring if witnesses have referred to him as an asshole. Doesn't get any better for Mr. Darden uh, this week. Uh, there are so many different components uh even just to what we just heard much less this week the sounded black sounded white uh you got to hear all of that exchange i was almost going to play the section from the fx series because in that series as i was watching all of this unfold i was objecting at every point where johnny cochran did like this is absurd what do you mean sounded white what do you mean sounded black that is absolute not exactly as he said that is total racism we talked about this what do you mean somebody sounded uh black 
I was right there the entire way through with all uh, of the objections, even though uh, Judge Ida overruled all of that. Uh, and in fact, they uh, wrote in the Chicago Times. Uh, I'm just reading verbatim afterward. The judge gently scolded Cochran, telling him that to wave the racism flag at this point is not germane. So you heard the testimony where uh, Darden went ahead and uh, asked and Hydra emphatically. I never said it sounded like a black person, white person, any of that nonsense. I couldn't tell. He even asked older person. What do you mean older? How much older? How old? All the fantastic questions. How can you get any of that information from just listening? Uh, There's so many different things to point out this week. We have the Furman tapes coming up. Uh, chock full of significant moments as we proceed. Just be mindful. And uh, we'll have some juicy audio clips uh, later once we get through the reading as well. Context of white supremacy. Again, this is Jeffrey Zoom Bomber number one of 2020. Tubins. The run of his life. The people versus O.J. Simpson. Audio segment one. The fact that Robert Heidstra lived up the block from Nicole demonstrated just how different Nicole's new neighborhood was from her old one, where she lived when married to O.J. Heidstra earned his living in a distinctively Southern California occupation. He was a car detailer. Heidstra traveled to the homes of wealthy people and cleaned their automobiles in a particularly meticulous way. He used toothbrushes and Q-tips as the tools of his trade. He supplied, in other words, a kind of meta-car wash for this car-obsessed culture. Among his clients were the Salingers, Simpson's next-door neighbors, and the employers of Rosa Lopez. It was not especially lucrative work, and Heidstra, a middle-aged immigrant from France, lived in a single room in a small apartment house off Bundy Drive. Cochran called Heidstra to testify about what he had heard while walking his dogs on the night of the murders. On direct examination, he said that he was walking on an alleyway parallel to Bundy at about 10.40 p.m. on June 12, 1994. At that time, he said, he heard a commotion in the area of Nicole Brown Simpson's condominium. Two voices, one clear, saying, Hey! 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 And the other indistinct. In this respect, Heidstra bolstered the defense theory that the murders took place around 10.30. In a sobering reminder that this case involved actual human beings, Patty Goldman, Ron Goldman's stepmother, told me at a break in Heidstra's testimony that she could tell this witness was indeed describing Ron's voice. That's just what Ron would say if he came on a scene like this, Patty said. Hey, hey, hey! The defense's timeline witnesses had been identified and cultivated by Bailey, McKenna, and Peter Neufeld. Cochran, who rarely did much preparation of witnesses, had only a general idea of what Heidstra was going to say. The prosecution, in contrast, knew a good deal about Heidstra. He had been interviewed several times, and the prosecutors nearly decided to call him as a witness in their own case, dropping him only because he conflicted with Clark's desire to place the murders at 10.15. But as Darden began his cross-examination, it became clear that Heidstra had a good deal to say that helped the government's case. 
For starters, Heidstra admitted that he usually walked his dogs at ten o'clock, which, if he had done so on the night of the murders, would have put the killings at precisely the time the prosecution claimed. Heidstra also said that he saw a white vehicle that could have been a Bronco leaving the scene, another fact that was consistent with the government's case. Twitching at the defense table, Cochran was losing his customary sang-froid as Darden converted Heidstra into a powerful prosecution witness. Continuing, Darden asked Heidstra, The second voice that you heard sounded like the voice of a black man. Is that correct? Cochran nearly jumped out of his chair. Objected to, Your Honor, he sputtered. I object. The defense caused such a commotion that Judge Ito excused the jury and told Heidstra to step outside for a moment. Darden patiently recounted to the judge that an acquaintance of Heidstra's, Patricia Barrett, had told Detective Tom Lang that Heidstra told her that he heard the very angry screaming of an older man who sounded black. Thus Darden explained to Ito he had every right to ask the question. But Cochran was not to be mollified. I resent that statement, he thundered. You can't tell by someone's voice when they're black. I don't know who's made that statement, Barrett or Lang. That's racist. Cochran continued his tirade. This statement about whether somebody sounds black or white is racist, and I resent it. And that's why I stood and objected to it. I think it's totally improper in America at this time in 1995 just to hear this and endure this. Darden looked stricken. The physical contrast between the two men had never looked greater. Cochran, eyes ablaze, full of blustering vitality. Darden, eyes down, looking skinny in his flopping, double-breasted jacket, pacing splay-footed behind the podium. When Cochran finished, Darden replied evenly that he was simply questioning Heidstra about a statement the witness himself had allegedly made earlier. Then he came as close as he ever would to lashing back, and he addressed Cochran with quiet dignity. That's created a lot of problems for my family and myself. Statements that you make about me and race, Mr. Cochran. Ito called a recess, and tempers cooled. Cochran's outrageous behavior revealed much about him and the way he approached his role as a defense attorney. In the first place, he was simply wrong. Many African Americans do have distinctive accents and speech patterns, but Cochran's cynicism ran deep. His outburst came just as one of his witnesses was blowing up in his face. How better to stop an effective cross-examination than by throwing a stink bomb of racial grievance into the middle of the courtroom? When the facts went against them, Simpson's attorneys turned, as they always did, to race. Shapiro had not entirely disappeared from the case, and though he had little to do, he maintained his sullen vigil at the defense table to the end. When the time came for Michael Bodden to testify, Barry Sheck made like a ventriloquist and fed Shapiro the substantive questions he should ask. With Bodden's testimony, Shapiro could not resist playing the race card in his own clumsy, if genial, way. Formerly the chief medical examiner of New York City, the curly-haired and loquacious Michael Bodden practically ran to the familiar blue witness chair when Shapiro summoned him. 
As with any expert witness, Shapiro began by eliciting Baden's qualifications, which were considerable. The jury learned that Baden had graduated from the City College of New York in 1955 and the New York University School of Medicine in 1959. Shapiro asked Baden what awards he had received at City College, senior class president, Phi Beta Kappa, and valedictorian, Baden replied. And where, Shapiro continued seamlessly, was that college located? Baden was suddenly struck dumb, clearly puzzled by how the location of City College might edify these jurors on any issue relevant to the guilt or innocence of Shapiro's client. Baden stumbled as he began his answer. It's located in Upper Manhattan, New York City, he said. Then he caught on and hastily completed his response. Harlem area of New York City. Having informed the nine African-American jurors that this white defense expert came of age in the unofficial capital of black America, Shapiro was off and running. An example after shameless example, Shapiro sought to turn Baden into an Abraham Lincoln of the autopsy table. Did he serve on any state commissions? Yes, Baden replied. The New York State Commission that investigates all deaths that occur in prisons and police custody in New York State. An entity that Baden said had been set up after the Attica deaths. Had he served on any federal commissions? Yes, he said, on the congressional committee formed to investigate the deaths of President John F. Kennedy and Dr. Martin Luther King. Shapiro then elicited from Baden a lengthy exegesis on the purpose of the examination of the death of Dr. Martin Luther King. Asked for any highlights of his efforts on behalf of prosecutors over the years, Baden replied, I was recently a witness for the prosecutor of Jackson, Mississippi in the reinvestigation of the death of Medgar Evers, who had been a civil rights leader who had been killed in 1963. Had he ever investigated cases for the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office? Indeed, he had. I was involved in the investigation and re-autopsy of the death of a young athlete, a football player in Los Angeles County, Ron Settles, who died in a police precinct in Signal Hill. Baden then hastened to add, Initially, I was called by the attorney for the family, Mr. Cochran, Johnny Cochran. As for the substance of the Simpson case, Baden had little to add other than that he thought Dr. Lakshmanan used too much guesswork in reconstructing the crime. As for the detective's failure to call the coroner immediately after discovering the bodies, which was a subject the defense lawyers had dwelled on for many hours with the police witnesses, Baden had the integrity to admit under cross-examination that it would not have made any difference in determining the time of death. The story was much the same, several witnesses later, with Henry Lee, another defense expert long on impressive qualifications, but short on relevant evidence in the case. Under Sheck's questioning, the centerpiece of Lee's testimony was his claim that the LAPD criminalists might have missed a single non-Bruno Mogli shoe print at the murder scene. Thus, according to Sheck, there was a second killer at the scene. Yet on close inspection, this claim evaporated. There were more than a dozen shoe prints from the size 12 Bruno Mogli shoes, all arranged in a logical progression along the path at Nicole's condominium. The only evidence of a second killer 
Was this possible, not definite, single shoe print? Did the second killer hop into the murder scene, remain on one foot in one place during the entire struggle, then hop away? The idea that this evidence truly suggested the involvement of a second killer was preposterous. Lee did, however, bestow one gift on the defense. When asked whether his review of the evidence revealed the possibility of tampering, Lee muttered darkly, if vaguely, something is wrong. Robert Huizanga was more than simply another defense witness whose testimony backfired. The three days on the witness stand of this Beverly Hills internist turned out, surprisingly, to be one of the more profound moments of the trial. Not since Ron Shipp's pathetic visit to the stand was there so vivid a reminder of the empty world of O.J. Simpson. At Shapiro's request, Huizanga had examined Simpson on June 15, 1994, just two days after he returned home from Chicago following the murders. The defense's, and especially the defendant's, idea was for Huizanga to testify about Simpson's various ailments in an effort to persuade the jury that O.J. lacked the physical ability to commit the crimes. And even a layman could tell such a claim was absurd. Despite his lingering football injuries, Simpson was bigger, stronger, and fitter than most people in the United States. What Huizenga's testimony did demonstrate was the extraordinary extent of Simpson's self-pity. The same side of his character that drove him to complain in his suicide note of being a battered husband drove Simpson, during his trial, to embrace Huizenga as a witness. Regardless of the facts, Simpson never saw himself as anything other than a victim. So, overcoming the skepticism of Cochran and other members of the defense team, Simpson and Shapiro, who wanted the airtime, prevailed and called Huizenga to the stand. To call the 42-year-old Huizenga boyish does not do justice to the curiously unlived-in look of his face. He could have passed for a college student. Blandly handsome, blonde, and fit, he seemed like a West Coast Dan Quayle. Huizenga had impeccable credentials, summa cum laude, graduate of the University of Michigan, degree from Harvard Medical School, former chief resident at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles, former team physician for the Los Angeles Raiders football team. Yet it was precisely because of his eminent qualifications that this testimony and demeanor seemed so shocking for it became clear, as soon as Shapiro called him to the stand, that Huizenga was completely in O.J. Simpson's thrall. In Los Angeles, it seems, it wasn't just the Ron Ships of the world, the hangers-on, the wannabes, who worshipped the local celebrities. Even Rob Huizenga, with all his fancy credentials, was willing to sacrifice his objectivity, his probity, and even his dignity to ingratiate himself with a famous man, even one accused of murder. Huizenga was so eager to testify that he frequently cut off Shapiro before he could even finish his question. According to Huizenga's examinations of Simpson on June 15th and June 17th, at Kardashian's house, just before O.J. and Cowling's disappeared, Simpson suffered, the doctor said, from a whole array of the typical post-NFL injury syndromes. He had a pair of bad knees, 
a bum right ankle, and a case of arthritis. On the day I saw him, he had significantly limited mobility, Yuzenga said. Fast walking, certainly in terms of slow jogging, it would be very difficult, if not impossible. Yuzenga also showed the jury the photographs of Simpson taking during the examination of June 17th. His torso was massive and hugely muscled. But Shapiro pointed out that he had no abrasions to suggest he had just fought a life-or-death struggle less than a week earlier. In his breezy way, Shapiro asked whether the photographs didn't show a man to be in pretty good shape. Yuzenga helpfully disagreed. Curiously, some people have these phenomenal builds and really aren't in all that great aerobic shape. And I think that, based on my history, he hadn't really been doing much exercise, if any. And there are some very lucky people that looks can be deceiving, and certainly in his case, although he looks like Tarzan, you know. He was walking more like Tarzan's grandfather. Brian Kelberg, the former medical student who had examined Lakshmanan at such length, conducted what was possibly the best cross-examination of the entire trial. Kelberg began by exploring the question of bias. Yuzanga had agreed that he had been hired by Shapiro under highly unusual circumstances and Kelberg asked whether the doctor had viewed his role as to start preparing a possible defense in the event Mr. Simpson was charged. Yuzanga pouted and disagreed. I took it to address his mental problems, insomnia, and difficulty handling this incredible stress that maybe no other human being, short of Job, has endured. There was a pause in the courtroom as lawyers on both sides did double-takes, as if to assure themselves that Huizenga had really said what they thought he said. Even the somnolent jurors perked up at the reference to Job. Kelberg knew just how to follow up. I want to be clear in your answer, he said. Is it your characterization that Mr. Simpson is in a situation which, to your knowledge, only Job has suffered more? I think the pressure that was on him, for whatever reason, was a tremendous weight. The change in his life status that very few, if any, people have experienced, in my opinion, Huizenga answered. And if he had murdered two human beings, Nicole Brown Simpson and her friend Ronald Goldman, would that be the kind of thing that would cause a great weight to be on a man's shoulders? Shapiro objected in vain, and Huizenga had to say, if someone hypothetically killed someone, they certainly would have a great weight on their shoulders. As Kelberg continued, Huizenga strained to spin every answer in Simpson's favor. Kelberg brought out that Huizenga had written Shapiro a series of letters, in which he, a nominally independent expert, had helped Simpson's lawyer plot legal strategy. Kelberg showcased Huizenga's preening ego for the jury, showing how the doctor larded up his resume with his talk show appearances. In answer after answer, Huizenga struggled to shade his answers to help the defense. It was an astonishing and appalling performance. Even on the substance of the case, Kelberg used Huizenga to his advantage. The prosecutor meticulously went over the photographs of Simpson's hands that were taken on June 17th and revealed to the jury that Simpson actually had seven separate abrasions on his left hand and three different cuts. His right hand was unmarked. 
This fit with the prosecution's theory that Simpson lost his left glove during the struggle at Bundy, cut his left hand, and did not lose his right glove until he returned to Rockingham. But Kelberg was just warming up. He showed a video clip from a motivational speech Simpson had given on March 31, 1994, a little more than two months before the murders, for an arthritis relief product called Juice Plus. Among other things, this demonstrated just how low Simpson had sunk in the entertainment world. Once he had made Hertz commercials for national television. Now he was pitching for a questionable medical remedy at a shabby convention in Dallas. Mugging for the cheering distributors, Simpson said, I started taking regularly Juice Plus and started feeling, I don't know if it was my mind over matter, if it was a mental thing, but almost immediately I started feeling better all of a sudden. I was starting to get another ten yards on my drive. Confronted with the tape, Uzenga had no choice but to speculate that Simpson was either lying to push the product, or in fact had enjoyed some relief from his arthritis symptoms. But the climax of Kelberg's cross-examination came when he played 70 minutes of raw footage from an exercise video that was later released as O.J. Simpson Minimum Maintenance for Men. Simpson had taped the routine, in which he looked fit and healthy in a T-shirt and lycra shorts, at the end of May 1994, just two weeks before the murders. Trading inane patter with the coach who was directing the exercises, Simpson looked like a model of middle-aged fitness. Simpson stretched, he marched, bent his knees, did push-ups and sit-ups. The tape alone scotched the notion that Simpson did not have the physical ability to murder his ex-wife and her friend. The most remarkable part of the tape came so fast that it was possible to miss it the first time through. One of the routines involved the participants simulating a punching motion. Right jab, left jab, right jab, left jab. As the coach on the videotape later testified, Simpson ad-libbed a narration to the punching portion of the exercise. Get your space in if you're working out with the wife, Simpson said to the camera, still punching at the air with his thick muscled arms. Then he chuckled and added, If you know what I mean, you can always blame it on working out. Meaning, if you punch your wife, you can always blame it on working out. A convicted wife-beater jokes about beating his wife. Could there have been a more chilling glimpse into O.J. Simpson's subconscious? The jurors, it turned out from later conversations, never paid any attention to this. Indeed, they said little about the defense case at all. So exhausted and numb were they by the summer months. By this point, it appears, they had already made up their minds. The defense case, then, ranged from poignant, Simpson's family, to pathetic, Huizenga, to irrelevant, Bodden and Lee, to downright incriminating, Hydstra and the exercise video. What many of the witnesses had in common was that their testimony pained them, embarrassed them, or otherwise diminished them. Indeed, though Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Goldman were the first and most important casualties of this case, they were not the only ones. There was Simpson's family, those decent and loyal women in yellow, who endured this long trial for a man they loved, and, of course, those two children, who would grow up without a mother. There were Simpson's friends, 
many of whom came to realize how blind they had been to O.J.'s narcissism and brutality. There were the peripheral figures, like Ship and Huizanga, who degraded themselves on the altar of celebrity. Ship, at least, came to realize what he had done. And there was even the public at large, whose passions and biases were inflamed by the events Simpson had set in motion. None of this mattered to O.J. Simpson because, as he had done his entire life, he cared only about himself. Huizanga and Heidstra gave the prosecution a brief but undeniable lift. So the defense lawyers retreated to the safe harbor they sought whenever the evidence turned against them. Race Chapter 22 Manna from Heaven Shortly after three in the afternoon on July 7th, the day after the prosecution rested its case, a secretary in Johnny Cochran's office said she had a phone call to patch through to Pat McKenna's cubicle. The caller, the secretary said, did not want to give his name. McKenna, as the lead private investigator for the defense, rarely came to the courthouse. Instead, he worked out of Cochran's office, chasing down witnesses, following up leads, and handling the endless number of tipsters who called with purported information about the case. McKenna's notes from most of these telephone calls wound up in a thick manila folder that bore the heading, Loonies. The caller on this day sounded saner than most of the others, and he offered unusually specific information— he said he was a lawyer from San Francisco, and he had a client who had a friend named Laura. The caller said that Laura had in her possession about a dozen audio tapes of Mark Furman talking about his police work. Scribbling as the caller talked, McKenna noted what the caller said Furman had discussed on the tapes. Plant evidence. Get niggers. So, Africa. Niggers. Apartheid. The caller gave McKenna a phone number for Laura with a 910 area code, North Carolina. McKenna, as he sometimes did with the more credible tipsters, gave this one a code name in case he wanted to get back in touch. You're Brian, McKenna told the voice on the phone. McKenna put down the phone with Brian and dialed Laura. A man answered. He said Laura was out but would be returning in about 15 minutes. McKenna left his name and number, but not his affiliation, and Laura called him back in about thirty minutes. This is Laura Hart McKinney, she said. I'm a private investigator working for O.J. Simpson, McKenna told her, with an edge of nervous pleading in his voice. We really believe our client is innocent, and we understand you have some tapes of Mark Furman that we think could help us very much. Polite but noncommittal, McKinney told McKenna, her lawyer would give him a call. Fifteen minutes later, a lawyer named Matthew Schwartz, who was based in Los Angeles, rang McKenna. Schwartz confirmed that the tapes existed and that they were authentic. He said that McKinney had interviewed Furman for a screenwriting project. Schwartz said he thought if the defense subpoenaed the tapes, they could probably work out a way for them to be turned over. At 5.08 p.m., less than two hours after he first heard of the tapes, McKenna faxed Schwartz a letter formally requesting them. It was only then that McKenna realized that, as he had been talking on the phone, he had traced and retraced the same words from his original notes. 
plant evidence, get niggers. In the struggle over the Furman tapes, the last great drama of the Simpson trial, it was as if the id of the case had been unleashed. All the smoldering passion, anger, and resentment shot directly to the surface. The Furman tapes gave the defense the opportunity it had sought since the day of the murders to change the subject from the culpability of its client to the sins of the LAPD. But this time there was a twist. Of course, Cochran and company went about their work of exploiting racial tensions with their usual shady cynicism, but the tapes' controversy gave the defense something it never had in earlier battles. The truth. About Mark Furman's character. The defense was right, and the prosecution wrong. The tapes thus forced the prosecutors to confront squarely the cost of their arrogance. Having had full warning about Furman's twisted soul, Clark had embraced him nonetheless. With McKinney's tapes, Clark and her colleagues paid the price. The roots of the final crisis went back more than a decade. Laura Hart McKinney had met Mark Furman on a pleasant late morning in February 1985 at an outdoor cafe in Westwood, McKinney was sipping a drink and typing on a laptop computer, a novelty in those days, and Furman came over to inquire about it. The two of them, both good-looking and in their mid-thirties, sat down to chat. Furman asked what she was working on. She said it was a screenplay about female police officers. Funny, he said. He was an LAPD officer himself. In the early 1980s, under political and legal pressure, the LAPD had dramatically expanded the number of women on the force. McKinney said she was writing about the stresses these women faced. Furman smiled. He could be a charming man, especially around an attractive woman. So he decided to taunt McKinney a little bit and at the same time flirt with her. He said he didn't think women belonged as police officers— that they couldn't handle the job, and that the recruitment efforts for them were going to lead to disaster. In fact, Furman told her he belonged to a clandestine organization within the LAPD known as Men Against Women, or MAW, which was dedicated to resisting the encroachment of women onto this traditionally male turf. McKinney immediately recognized Furman as a potential resource, an insider who could give her the perspective of the hostile, sexist LAPD traditionalist. Perhaps, they agreed that first day, they could talk some more about the subject. That first meeting set the tone for a relationship that would last almost a decade. Their story was, in its way, a paradigmatic tale of modern Los Angeles, a city with an unproduced screenplay and many a desk drawer. Furman and McKenney met again on April 2nd, 1985, and this time she brought her tape recorder so she could preserve his sexist and secondarily racist rants. They agreed that McKenney would give Furman a $10,000 fee as a technical consultant if the movie was ever produced. Because McKinney was obviously working on a fictional screenplay, she and Furman never really dealt with the question of whether everything he told her, all of his opinions, all of his war stories, was literally true. He was obviously drawing on his own experiences, but he was also trying to jazz them up for her cinematic purposes. 
there was a personal dimension to the relationship as well. A dreamy 1960s throwback with a taste for liberal politics and natural foods, McKenney was a perfect foil for the right-wing Furman. He delighted in shocking her with his preening, even exaggerated, bigoted braggadocio. McKinney worked hard. She would carefully transcribe the text of their meetings, send copies to Furman, and then arrive at their next encounter with a list of new questions. Ultimately, they had twelve sessions together, yielding about twelve hours of interviews. McKinney also went on drive-arounds with female police officers and interviewed them as well. According to a producer who knew her, Laura did everything a writer was supposed to do. She really got to know her subject, really did her homework. There was just one problem. She didn't write a very good screenplay. McKinney produced the first draft of her screenplay in the late 1980s. She called it Men Against Women, after the organization Furman had discussed with her. McKinney's tale concerned a rookie female officer who falls in love with her partner, who turns out to be a member of Maw. Shopped around to various studios, McKinney's work, like most screenplays, found note-takers. Over the years, McKinney would serve as a rather extreme example of the difficulties of entering the screenwriting industry. In her entire career, she had never sold a single movie script, yet she continued to plug away. She taught part-time at UCLA and in the Malibu School District, all the while pursuing her research on the police project. However, she didn't meet with Furman at all between 1988 and 1993, when she took time off to raise her two small children. It was during this fallow period that her screenplay nearly came to life as a commercial project. McKinney's children attended a progressive school in Santa Monica called PS1, short for Pluralistic School No. 1. Her children played with the kids of another parent at the school, a producer named John Flynn, who took an interest in McKinney's project. Obviously, after all these years, there were no competing bidders. So in 1992, Flynn paid McKinney a token $1,000 for a two-year option on selling the script to a production company. The early 1990s were a difficult period in McKinney's life. Her husband, Daniel, was a cinematographer who sometimes found work as a grip on movie sets. Laura worked part-time tutoring UCLA athletes. In 1993, owing $80,000 in credit card bills and back taxes, the McKinneys declared bankruptcy. They decided to pick up stakes and sign up as professors at the fledgling North Carolina School of the Arts. Notwithstanding her own lack of success in the field, Laura taught screenwriting. Still, she never gave up on men against women. In the middle of 1994, with the option about to expire, Flynn had a nibble on the project. He had spoken to a representative of Fred Dreyer, the handsome ex-football star who had starred in the archetypical LAPD television series Hunter. Flynn was going to meet with Dreyer, so he called on McKinney and Furman to join him in a strategy session to prepare the pitch. The date of their meeting was July 28, 1994, six weeks after the murders and ten days after my New Yorker story about Furman appeared. At the meeting, which McKinney taped, Furman was still fuming about the story, vowing to sue Shapiro, who he assumed had leaked it. 
Furman said he had even talked with an attorney who might represent him. Well, the funny thing about it is, Furman told his colleagues, just like the attorney said, for the rest of your life this is you, your bloody glove Furman, that's it. He says, you might as well make it pay off. All you're doing is going through this heartache for nothing. Go for Shapiro. He's an asshole. In the end, though, Furman felt confident that the LAPD would stand behind him in the growing controversy about his racial views. I'm the key witness in the biggest case of the century, Furman boasted, and if I go down, they lose the case. The glove is everything. Without the glove, bye-bye. Dreyer passed on the project. But in anticipation of the negotiations with Dreyer's company, McKinney had hired an agent, Jim Preminger, the son of the famed director Otto Preminger, as well as another parent at PS1. Preminger never heard the tapes, but he had a general idea of what was on them. When the trial heated up the following spring, he called McKinney and told her she probably should get a lawyer. McKinney asked a colleague in North Carolina for a recommendation, and he suggested Matt Schwartz, a young lawyer with whom the colleague had recently attended UCLA film school. In Los Angeles, everyone writes screenplays, but what they really want to do, even the lawyers, is direct. In late May 1995, McKinney called Schwartz and explained what the tapes were and how she and Furman had come to make them. McKinney was in a quandary. Her fondest hope was that some company would finally buy and produce Men Against Women. But Schwartz recognized that the tapes with Furman's voice were the more valuable commodity. Schwartz proposed, and McKinney agreed, that he test the waters to check out the market for the tapes. In June, Schwartz contacted several outlets in the cash-for-trash industry, London newspapers, supermarket and television tabloids, and Faye Resnick's publisher, Dove Books. Several expressed interest, and Schwartz faxed them non-disclosure agreements, documents that said the media outlets could examine the tapes, but only for the purpose of determining what to pay for them. Schwartz said later that he received a bid of $250,000 for the tapes, but McKinney turned it down. Not surprisingly, Schwartz's testing of the waters started the rumor mill working and set off another feud within Simpson's defense team. In early July, right around the time McKenna received the call from Brian, McKenna's rival fellow investigator from the Shapiro camp and the defense team, Bill Pavlik, also heard about the tapes from a friend. This friend, a disbarred lawyer from near Oakland, told Pavlik that Schwartz was shopping the Furman tapes to the tabloids, asking them to pay $10,000 just to listen to excerpts. Schwartz later denied this. Thus, Pavlik and McKenna both claimed to have discovered the tapes. In truth, McKenna had located the first direct route to McKinney. But Shapiro, who loathed McKenna, along with his allies Bailey and Cochran, wanted his own fingerprints on the discovery. Shapiro later went so far as to arrange for Skip Taft, Simpson's business manager, to send the disbarred lawyer $1,500 of O.J.'s money for your remarkable services in connection with the discovery of the Furman tapes just to establish that Shapiro had played a role in tracking them down.
It was, in all likelihood, Schwartz's proto-auction that prompted the call from Brian to Pat McKenna, as well as the tip to Pavlik. In any event, when word of the tape's existence spread around the defense team during the second week in July, there was outright jubilation. If this is real, Barry Sheck said at a defense meeting, it would mean an acquittal, flat out. Jerry Ullman told McKenna, this is manna from heaven. But it was Cochran who was moved the most deeply. He took an almost mystical joy in the subject of the McKinney tapes. Though nominally appalled by their contents, Cochran at one point told Judge Ito that the tapes were like Lay's potato chips. You can't put them down, and you can't eat just one. Cochran had spent his entire professional career both fighting and exploiting racism in the LAPD. Now there was, it appeared, tangible proof of that racism, and it had surfaced in the most important case of Cochran's career. Cochran could be bawdy, irreverent, and profane, but he displayed an unfeigned spiritual side in private as well. In all sincerity, Cochran told at least one colleague on the defense team that he believed God had brought the McKinney tapes to him. Cochran talked about, and seemingly thought about, the tapes all the time. But Cochran had yet to get his hands on them. On July 12th, the day of Cochran's Sounds Black outburst during Robert Heidstra's testimony, Cochran and Shapiro went to Matthew Schwartz's office to try to get a commitment that they could have access to the tapes. In the meeting, Schwartz put them off. McKinney was on vacation at the time, and Schwartz wanted to play out his Testing the Waters project. Later, both Schwartz and McKinney ascribed a great deal of significance to the semantic and possibly meaningless distinction between testing the waters and actually trying to sell the tapes. Schwartz did at least promise Simpson's lawyers that McKinney would not destroy the tapes. A week passed, and Schwartz finally said that McKinney would not surrender the tapes voluntarily. Schwartz now said McKinney regarded herself as a journalist in her meetings with Furman, and she did not wish to share the fruits of her reporting. Frustrated, Cochran sent Carl Douglas to appear in secret before Judge Ito on July 20th and explain the situation to him. Ito agreed that the tapes were material to the Simpson case and signed a subpoena, which the defense team would now have to enforce in McKinney's home state of North Carolina. All the defense lawyers, of course, wanted to be the ones to travel to North Carolina to argue that the tapes should be turned over. Cochran would go. That much was settled. Shapiro wanted Jerry Ullman to handle the legal issues. Bailey said that Ullman was a nice guy, but he always lost his arguments. Bailey wanted Bailey to go. In the end, Cochran decided to take Bailey. Usually, in the many briefs the defense filed over the course of the case, a secretary in Cochran's office signed the lawyers' names. But in a bizarre measure of how seriously the defense team took the McKinney issue, all the lawyers insisted on signing their own names to the North Carolina brief. It was thus especially ironic that the true authors of that brief, Bailey's law partners in Boston, Ken Fishman and Dan Leonard, preferred to remain behind the scenes and did not have their names on it. So on Friday, July 28th, 
Cochran and Bailey appeared before Judge William Z. Wood, Jr., in Forsyth County, North Carolina, to ask him to enforce the subpoena to McKinney. Since Ito, the trial judge in the case, had ruled that the material was relevant, Wood's approval should have been just a formality. In his chambers, Judge Wood let Cochran see transcripts of the tapes for the first time. They were worse, and thus from Cochran's perspective, better than even he had imagined. Furman used the crudest slurs imaginable, and nigger repeatedly. When McKinney took the stand in front of the North Carolina judge and the waiting press corps, Cochran couldn't wait to work a few quotes from the tapes into his questions. For example, Cochran asked McKinney, Did Detective Furman say to you during this first interview when you were getting his attitude, quote, that we've got females and dumb niggers and all your Mexicans that can't even write the name of the car they drive. And you think I'm kidding? We have people who aren't even citizens on the department. Did he say that to you? McKinney said he did. Yet Judge Wood, unaccountably, ruled against Cochran and Bailey, asserting that the tapes were not material to the Simpson defense case. This was a shattering blow, and Bailey immediately set his law partners in Boston to work on an emergency appeal. But as devastated as Cochran was by the ruling, he knew he had accomplished something important in getting at least a few of Furman's words out via the North Carolina court hearing. The public quickly became more interested in the Furman tape's sideshow to the Simpson spectacle especially since the trial itself had degenerated into a droning series of defense experts. In light of the growing public obsession with the tapes, Cochran changed his approach to the Simpson case. For the final month of the case, Johnny Cochran would campaign for acquittal, not just in the courtroom, but in the country at large. And not just as a lawyer, but as a self-appointed civil rights leader. After an extraordinary effort by Bailey's law partners, the North Carolina Court of Appeals overturned Judge Wood's plainly incorrect ruling on August 7th. The McKinney tapes arrived at last in Cochran's office on August 9th. Media interest in their contents grew even more fevered. The loss in North Carolina, even though it was later rectified, rattled Cochran. Confident from the beginning that he could win a hung jury for his client, Cochran felt the tapes represented the ammunition he needed to push the jurors toward an outright acquittal. At the most basic level, of course, the tapes proved that Furman had lied in answering Bailey's carefully phrased questions about whether the detective had used the word nigger in the previous ten years. But more than that, the tapes allowed Cochran to make Furman's irrefutable bigotry stand as a proxy for the racism of the LAPD as a whole. The choice in the case would come down to exactly the one Darden had predicted seven months earlier in his original debate with Cochran over what became known in the trial as the N-word. Whose side are you on? Either you were with the man, or you were with the brothers. But Cochran couldn't trust that Ito wouldn't, like Judge Wood, thwart him at the last moment. Like most of the lawyers on both sides, Cochran assumed that some news about the trial was filtering back to the sequestered jurors. 
He also thought that general public agitation about the tapes fed the prosecution's insecurity and growing sense of panic. All in all, then, Cochran needed a public airing of the tapes. In other words, he needed their contents leaked to the press. The prosecutors, for their part, could tell what Cochran was thinking, and they tried to counter his strategy. If they could confine the McKinney controversy and limit public exposure of the tapes, they had a chance of preventing the case from evolving into a referendum on police racism. Therefore, the prosecutors were only too happy when Schwartz, McKinney's attorney, insisted before Ito that the tapes be governed by a tightly worded protective order. Schwartz still entertained hopes of selling them. On August 10th, Ito directed that the audio tapes should remain under seal until he ordered otherwise. Ito's order permitted only the lawyers on the case and their direct assistants access to the tapes and the transcripts. Ito's order built a wall of secrecy around the tapes, until or unless the judge himself ordered them to be played in court. In light of the protective order, Cochran couldn't simply hand the transcripts over to a friendly reporter. Same with the other defense lawyers, the risk of exposure was simply too great. The question thus became, who on the defense team could do it? Who wouldn't mind taking the chance of directly violating a court order? Who had contacts among the reporters on the press corps? Whose ethics permitted him to do a job like that? All signs pointed to one man, Larry Schiller. O.J. Simpson's literary amanuensis, the co-author of I Want to Tell You, had spent the entire trial ingratiating himself with reporters, as well as gathering material from inside the defense camp for his next, still inchoate, ghost-written version of Simpson's story. Schiller loved being at the center of the action, so he was only too happy to share the McKinney largesse with his journalist friends, and they were likewise pleased with their scoops. For the next week or so, Schiller leaked hate-filled tidbits to reporters. Schiller denies doing this. The ensuing outcry from the public against Furman added immeasurably to the pressure on Ito to admit the tapes into evidence, just as Cochran knew it would. Context of White Supremacy So we are still in the same chapter, Manna from Heaven. Uh, we have not yet got to the full disclosure of the Furman audio and uh, and his return to the stand. That's why I said there's so many different components uh, to this week. Like, whew, we'll try to go quickly. Context of white supremacy, Gus T. Renegade. So I had not intended, uh, I didn't know how much uh, old Jeff Tubin uh, deception we were going to experience this week. So I had not intended to uh, write this or read this portion from uh, Johnny Cochran's book about the testimony of Dr. Michael Baden and Dr. Henry Lee, Dr. Michael, Michael Baden, uh, just because of what Tubin just shared. So I'll read a little bit about what they have to, what Mr. Cochran has to say about their testimony. Uh, and then uh, I'll give a little bit about what he has to say about the lead up to the Furman audio. So this is on page 303 from Journey to Justice. In relatively few hours of testimony, Michael Baden, 
convincingly demolished the coroner's version of how intense the struggle that preceded the deaths of Nicole Brown and Ron Goldman must have been. Similarly, he offered what was clearly a more accurate assessment of how long it took them to die of their awful wounds. Finally, with winning candor, he made it obvious to the jurors that the facts on the ground would just not support the prosecution's luridly detailed reconstruction of the murder's actual sequence. As we now know, there was evidence inside the coroner's office to support Baden's interpretation of those facts, though it was concealed from us at the time by the prosecutors. They always insisted, for example, that the reason Lakshmanan testified rather than his deputy, Erwin Golden, who actually performed the autopsies, was that Golden had committed so many errors and had testified so badly at the preliminary hearing. Tubin said that last week. Based on a deposition taken after the criminal trial from Golden, we can see there were other reasons as well. One of the more lurid facets of Lakshmanan's reconstruction was his contention that the marks on Nicole Brown's back were created when her assailant placed his foot there before pulling back her hair and slashing her throat. Both Lakshmanan and other prosecution witness FBI agent William Bodziak testified that the alleged imprint matched that of a Bruno Mogli shoe. Baden, by contrast, testified that this purported shoe print, in fact, was nothing more than lividity or pooled blood in the dead woman's back. Golden, it now emerges, had told Deputy District Attorney Brian Kelberg, who examined Lakshmanan, precisely that. He told the prosecutor that there were no bruises on Nicole Brown's back and that if they had been present at the time of autopsy, he would have photographed them. Under California law, Kelberg had a duty to inform the defense of the contrary opinion he had obtained from Golden when the shoe theory was presented by the two other prosecution witnesses and he did not even inform us. Later in the trial, Barry Sheck led Henry Lee through an analysis of all the forensic evidence, particularly the critical blood splatters which held the jurors entranced. Henry's memorable use of a red ink dropper to demonstrate how such a splatter is in fact deposited was not only brilliant courtroom theater, but also utterly persuasive in its simplicity. Lee gently educated the jury on precisely why the LAPD's slipshod collection and handling methods could render all subsequent evidentiary analysis, no matter how sophisticated, virtually useless. More important, he pointed out to them that the clear, logical sequence that ought to link crime scene, evidence collection, and analysis in any murder had curious gaps in this case. Impeccable scientist that he is, Lee resolutely refused to speculate on why those links were missing. This is where Tubin says he's being vague. There were there was no way for him to know. So he simply summed up his perplexity in a charmingly accented phrase that became a kind of coda for our case. Something wrong here. 
as it happened, this deeply learned man's simple phrase precisely captured the jurors' sentiments about the evidence the prosecution presented to them, and as we discovered during our post-trial interviews with them, many of the panelists adopted something wrong here as their own. Naturally gifted expert witnesses like Michael Baden and Henry Lee are educators and their opinions accompany jurors into their deliberations in much the same way that a favorite teacher's lessons remain with us throughout our lives. Who can forget Lee's memorable comparison of questionable evidence to finding a cockroach in a bowl of spaghetti? Once you find it, you don't have to keep eating to see if there are any more metaphors. Woo, they can be memorable. Baden and Lee had told our jurors compelling chapters in the story we plan to lay out for them. But behind the scenes, a drama within a drama was playing itself out and its conclusion would provide the most telling episode in the story of the O.J. Simpson's defense. Its protagonist was the LAPD detective from central casting and his role appropriately enough would be defined by a movie script. The detective of course was Mark Furman and there definitely was something wrong there. I'll stop right there. As I said, I hadn't planned to read that. I only included it because I felt that Jeffrey Tubin uh, gave such a bias interpretation. That's why I said it's no need to depend on Jeffrey Tubin to get his analysis, his lopsided and biased analysis of the trial. You can just watch and come to your own conclusion. But I can say emphatically as with regards to everything he had to say about Dr. Lee's testimony, Dr. Baden's testimony, like and particularly you want to compare Henry Lee, Michael Baden, compare them to the prosecution's expert scientific witnesses like uh, Yamaguchi, Dennis Fung, start even Lakshmanan, start picking their witnesses and put up who do we think is more credible in terms of what they say, how many times they have to come and admit to errors and slop and nonsense and not following policy and procedure, even of the LAPD crime lab and all the rest of it. In addition to, as Mr. Cochran talked about, many of the jurors talked about the impact of Henry Lee's testimony specifically in the OJ 25 series on court TV the commentators talk about Henry Lee's testimony specifically in saying, wow, that Tom Lang and so many of these other witnesses, you know, they just get up. They don't talk to the jury. They don't look at them. You know, they just go about blah, 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 say what they got to say. Henry Lee came in every day that he testified. He spoke to the jury. He looked at them in the eye when he gave his testimony. He talked to them even they talked about one of the differences he didn't talk down to them I think he has like six PhDs professional witness learned man as uh, Mr. Cochran described he didn't talk to them like they were dumb ignorant heads of lettuces talk to them like you can understand I in fact if I am brilliant let me break it down to you quickly and explain it to you like you're five so you got you understand what I'm saying Anyway, moving forward, I'll give a little bit about uh, the Furman audio from Johnny Cochran's text. He writes, 
Judge Ito issued the subpoena we requested and I prepared to fly to North Carolina to ask that a local court enforce it. But before I left, another far less pleasant issue involving tape recordings arose. For some time, several of us had noticed that Bob Shapiro would periodically interrupt meetings or conversations with abrupt tangential statements that frequently sounded rehearsed. It was hard to know what to make of them, and I shrugged them off as a kind of minor irritation. Then one day Shapiro, Simpson, Bailey, and I were conferring in the lockup before court. One of Bob's pants pockets gapped markedly, and when I stared down into it, I saw the red light of a running microcassette recorder. I angrily pulled Bob aside. What are you doing? I demanded, pointing down to the recorder. Oh, Shapiro responded in evident confusion. I must have turned that on by mistake. I immediately went out and recounted the incident to the other lawyers and Simpson who had a similar experience to report. According to our client, not long before, Bob sat down across the table from him in one of the private booths in the jail's attorney room and said, OJ, I think it would be helpful if you could really open up and share some of your deepest thoughts with me. The whole thing was just plain weird. Johnny Simpson said to me, what did you tell him? I asked nothing. OJ replied, it was weird. There was nothing to do but proceed with caution and wonder just how many of our other conversations had somehow ended up on our colleague's recorder. Later that same day, Shapiro, to whom I had assigned fewer witnesses with each passing month, stumbled through a particularly poor examination for which he appeared inexplicably unprepared. As my co-counsel fumbled around with the papers before him on the podium, Simpson leaned over to me and whispered insistently, this has got to stop. On Friday, July 28, 1995, after a night on the red eye from Los Angeles, F. Lee Bailey and I walked into a courtroom in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, to request that Judge William Wood Jr. act on behalf of his state and enforce Judge Ito's subpoena of Laura Hart McKinney's tape-recorded conversations with Mark Furman. We had also retained local counsel Robert Craig. It was the first day of the OJ's trial I had missed. There was a mob scene at the courthouse. Once more, I began to sense just how widely the preoccupation with the Simpson trial had spread. Every available seat in Judge Wood's court, including those in the jury box, was filled not just with regular spectators, but with local judges and lawyers who had put their own business aside for the morning to catch a glimpse of us. Almost immediately, we went back into Wood's chambers to listen to the tapes. It's hard to describe the atmosphere in those cramped chambers as we sat transfixed, each for our own reasons, by the sound of a disembodied Mark Furman spewing out hatred and filth until the room's very air became fetid and heavy with his venom. Despite what we had sworn under Lee's, despite what he had sworn under Lee's cross-examination, the word nigger seemed to pass from Furman's lips as naturally as breath. More than that, there were stories of suspects beaten to a pulp, of confessions extracted under torture, of evidence planted, of cases fabricated, 
and of racial harassment. There were accounts of his disgust with interracial relationships and vicious slurs against women, Latinos, Jews, and gays. Perhaps most telling, there was an assessment recorded in June 1995 of his own importance to the prosecution of O.J. Simpson. I'm the key witness in the trial of the century, he bragged. If I go down, the glove goes out and their case goes bye-bye. Well, I thought to myself, even this miscreant isn't wrong about everything. At about that point, Judge Wood apparently had had enough. Well, well, he said, this is not a very nice fellow. He certainly has a dirty mouth, doesn't he? I've heard enough. Let's go out and deal with it. Put it on the record. Wood took the bench, then stunned everyone in the room with his ruling. The subpoena will be denied, he said. This detective was obviously playing a role. It was all for a screenplay. I do not know what Wood's views of racial matters may be. I am willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. I decided to take his ruling as just another reminder that the Mark Furmans of the world survive at least in part because of other people's desire to avoid, even suppress, the distasteful, the hurtful, the troublesome, and the inconvenient. I'd spent a lifetime fighting otherwise well-meaning people's squeamishness, and I had no intention of surrendering now, well-meaning white people indeed. I turned to Lee Bailey, who looked as if he was about to choke on his outrage. Never fear, my brother. I assured him this will not stand. As soon as I could get to a phone, I called Ken Spaulding, a fine North Carolina lawyer I knew, and asked him to begin the appeals process. He was joined by Joe Cheshire, Kenny Fishman, and key staff from Bailey's Boston office. Eight days later, the North Carolina Court of Appeals unanimously ordered enforcement of Judge Ito's subpoena. Back in Los Angeles, the task of actually transcribing the hours of tape-recorded conversations fell to Carmen Qualls, one of our firm's most valuable staff members. Carmen, with the help of every able Tony Adams, put in several all-nighters to transcribe the Furman tapes. Unfailingly competent, Carmen had assumed the duties of tailoring our office operations to the demands of the Simpson case. She maintained our war room and acted as administrative assistant for our team's members, some of whom were far from home. Not the least, she arranged the nightly catered meals that made it possible for all of us to return from court and then work together until sleep overtook us. Among the highlights of Carmen's culinary endeavors were the numerous meals she arranged to have prepared for us by Magic Johnson's personal chef Carol Quigless. It was a sobered Carmen, however, who finally presented me with the transcripts of Furman's remarks. Far from naive or sheltered, she nonetheless looked unusually weary, almost shaken. I asked whether she'd had any particular difficulty teasing the words from the interviews frequently conducted in noisy restaurants. Nope, she said, though Laura Hart McKinney's almost unnaturally soft voice had been a bit of a problem. What about Furman? I asked. 
in North Carolina, I had heard only some of the 61-plus hate-laced excerpts we now knew the tapes contained, had he dropped his voice when he spat his venom in public places. No, Carmen said almost sadly. He'd get excited. That's how I could tell something was coming. If anything, that stuff was clearer than the rest. You know how your voice lifts when you're excited? That's how he would be when he would... Carmen's voice and gaze trailed off as she handed me the last of the transcripts and left. Uh, Just pausing. Uh, When we had uh, Patrick J. McKenna on the program, uh, he corroborated this and saying he was there when some of the staff was listening to and transcribing the audio and he could see the look uh, in these black females' faces and the disgust and all the rest of it back in the archives. Continuing, I sat there turning page after page. It was like looking at a snake. You don't really want to, but somehow it seems too dangerous to look away. It all was appalling, but two excerpts hit me with a deep and personal force. In one of them, Furman talked about how his training officers had instructed him to disarm, then shoot difficult suspects. It's basically murder, he said proudly. That is what they taught me then. That's too violent now. What have we become? Then he launched into what amounted to a nostalgic elegy for the chokehold, whose loss he bitterly resented and seemed to feel in a personal sense. You know why we stopped the choke? He asked rhetorically. We stopped the choke because a bunch of niggers have a bunch of these organizations in the South End and because all these niggers were choked out and killed. Personally, I probably personally choked out between, oh, probably 150 people, maybe 200. I thought of Herb Avery, James and James Thomas Mincy, and those other dead young men for whose families I had been able to do nothing at all. Then suddenly there was this. I hope they never tear down the old 77th Division Station. Furman laughed. They ought to declare the place a historical landmark. You'd never be able to replace the smell of all the dead niggers we killed in there. The officers who shot Johnny Choice's son had come from that station, and so had many others in the abuse cases I had futilely pursued in the desolate years before Ron settles. They ought to build a monument there, I thought, a monument to Furman's hateful arrogance, which finally has handed me something sharp enough to pierce the veil of silence behind which all the Mark Furmans have been hiding all these years. This time I said to Philistine, I have you, and like the lion and the bear, I will not let you go. Let's see. Read any more. Give a couple more paragraphs, and then I'll get to the phone lines. Over the next few weeks, O.J. Simpson's increasingly desperate 
prosecutors attempted a series of maneuvers to prevent our jurors from hearing the evidence of Furman's bias. At one point, Marsha Clark announced that her office would attempt to have Judge Ito removed from the case because in one expert excerpt, Furman, who had served under Captain Peggy York in West Los Angeles, could be heard making a series of derogatory remarks about the abilities and appearance of Ito's wife. We will stop there because Mr. Tubin does talk about that. So we'll leave it there for a moment. The number is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. One thing of many with Tubin and many others, when they talk about the Furman tapes, they will reduce it and say, oh, just making it about race, shit, nigger, and he said substantially more than nigger. Substantially more. We will get to all of that. The number again is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, the email until justice at gmail. Dot com. Uh, we'll get some of the folks who wrote in uh, email number one female victim of racism. She writes, writes, I am still watching the trial videos, but the cows book club passed me a couple of weeks ago as I'm only at the end of May and the prosecution is still presenting its DNA evidence. I have not been watching 24 seven, but I have watched the trial every day. That is an indication of how much detail Tubin left out of his book underline bold face print for sure uh, and I skipped by a few days of the prosecution examination of their criminologist because it was so boring indeed I realized that I could get the gist of their case by listening to the defense's cross-examination Tubin and Marsha Clark at all may consider me a dumb Negro. I guess they do. And perhaps they are right. But like the jurors, I deduced that the prosecution was deliberately making the presentation of the DNA evidence complicated, literally attempting to blind them with science. Clearly, this backfired on the on the Clark and the rest of her team. The strategy was a risky one, but I guess not if your perspective is a racist one and you consider all black people to be childlike. If this is the case, Barry Sheck simplifying how the criminologists were cross-examined and not patronizing the jurors worked against the prosecution. That and their obvious lies and circumstantial evidence against O.J. Simpson. Robin Cotton was the most condescending of them all. She literally lectured at the jurors for days and even used a flip chart as part of her presentation, speaking slowly to them as if they were imbeciles. I believe the prosecution played off black people's experiences of racism in the classroom and Robin Cotton was the embodiment of racist woman in the classroom. However, even children can work out when they are being mistreated, even if they cannot articulate what is actually happening. When I read the excerpt from Madam Foreman, uh, Madam Forewoman, excuse me, last week, uh, where some of the jurors, they talked about how they thought uh, Robin Cotton was kind of talking down to them and that they wanted to just be able to say, hey, we got it. 
move forward. You don't have to, you know, talk to us like we're in kindergarten for the next five days. And they said that specifically, like she's talking to us like we're in kindergarten. We are not five years old. We may not have a PhD, but come on. Continuing. Uh, Stephen Bell Davis, the narrator, is doing a great job getting across the racism in Tubin's book. In the most refined way, he's a natural, and I get the sense that Tubin is using his book to rehabilitate Marsha Clark's reputation. That is, I think that is so huge, and I think it's even stronger in the FX series on which he's a consultant, and it's based on this book. But abs because they don't have a lot of the critique and presentation of Marsha Clark as being uh, arrogant and they don't go into all the detail about her ditching her family and I'm taking my children and never seeing you all again and I'm never sharing the children with their grant they don't go to leave all that out uh, and they just get to portray her as a poor victim of sexism and oh toxic masculinity and just beating up on poor Marsha Clark and she's smart and intelligent and working absolutely that is a huge agenda I would say especially in the FX series but in this book as well Uh, let's see as Johnny Cochran pointed out the prosecution had as many if not more lawyers than in OJ's team the prosecution team interchanged the lawyers throughout unlike Tubin's claim that it was a strategy for Marsha Clark to sit out so that the jury could develop a rapport with individual lawyers in the prosecution team. I believe her bosses realized she was so emotionally unbalanced that they told her to sit down for a while, but she was in the court pretty much every day and made her presence felt. Marsha Clark is a thug who refused to accept Judge Ito's rules of conduct in the courtroom, repeatedly objecting when she was not the lead lawyer questioning witnesses. At one point, she pushed in front of one of the defense team lawyers who was standing at the podium to object to his cross-examination. He was so shocked, he looked back at the defense team in disbelief. Chris Darden was not in charge. Marsha Clark made it clear that she was throughout, even when she was not questioning witnesses. Tubin finds many ways to be derogatory about black women as opposed to the complimentary way he talks about all the white women involved in the case, not just their intellectual capabilities or lack thereof, but also their physical attributes. When he referred to Marsha Clark as beautiful and called Andrea Mazzola a young woman, more lies. Does anyone find it curious how many of the white people involved in the case, lawyers, ex-jurors, and witnesses were being offered books, movie deals, and other jobs, even while the trial was ongoing? I may have missed the offers to black jurors. The black jurors who wrote their book after the case was over. Being interviewed by the media does not count, in my opinion, as most of them were presented as dumb black people, and I'd be surprised if they were paid. Poor OJ. I conclude he kept Shapiro on his team to limit the damage he would do while the case was ongoing. I think other people uh, have hinted at that as well, like wouldn't want him to leave and go leak all his secret recordings and all the rest of it. Uh, much obliged, ma'am. The email until justice at gmail.com. We have other written commentary as well. We'll get to some of the folks who dialed in 720-716-7300. The code 564-943. 
pound press star six one if you would like to participate folks who dialed in with a hand up you have commentary to share proceed hey what's up Gus uh, victim out of New Jersey um yo you know what I, I remember that saying and it says uh, I don't know who is uh, quoted and credited with this but it says like the only history uh, the only secrets in the world is the history you don't know and um that's what that's what comes to mind when I listen to this and just how the media and also some of these authors authors um, you know, just kind of like deliberately omit certain, uh, you know, history to, so they can uh, kind of like uh, create a narrative of their liking. Um, there's so much going on with this case. I would like to, I would really like to know, because I came in, I came in kind of late. Um, Darden, did Darden hear these tapes? Um, what was his... Uh, uh, what was his opinion of these tapes? I mean, what was his, uh, you know, facial expressions, you know? Um, how did he feel once he, you know, heard those tapes? And, you know, so I, I would definitely uh, like to know that. Um, listening to Mark Furman, I couldn't, I, I mean, you know, just kind of like, uh, you know, some of the wording, some of the things that he said. I just thought about the Turner Diaries. Um, what also came to mind was um, uh, serial killer uh, Charles Manson, who, um, if I got it correct, wanted to orchestrate these killings to start a race war. And um, how you have come up with a theory that maybe Mark Furman and the... Uh, Oklahoma with the Oklahoma City bombing bomber. Um, his name escapes me. Um, you know just how you know all those all those uh, you know how that context is just like so relevant in this um, this OJ case. So man, you know I mean it, it just it just never ceased to amaze me to limp that racists will go, you know, to lie. Um, man, I'm, I'm again, I'm fully engaged, and um, I can't wait to hear the rest of uh, this reading. Uh, I'll just, I'll end with that. If I have anything further to say, I'll say something towards the end. Much obliged uh, victim in New Jersey. Uh, as for Darden's response, uh, keep listening, I reckon, uh, because we technically have not actually got to where the tapes have been introduced at the trial yet. So we will get to hear some of Darden's response. And we actually do have some audio today as well. We just haven't. We have the other audio segment from the book, but we actually have audio supplement today as well. So we will get to hear how does Christopher Darden sound after the Furman tapes have aired uh, in court. We'll get to hear that. We'll get to hear uh, lots of folks. We have great audio supplement after the tapes have aired, but since we have not actually got to the point where they've actually played in the trial yet, more to come. Uh, let's see. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up, if you have comments here to share, line should be open. Proceed. 
see. Wow. Folks are heard? Thomas in New York. Yes, sir. Yes. Um, good evening, boss. Good evening to the callers. Um, Shapiro, a little clip you played on, or you just read on, recorded his client and colleagues. Um, that is grounds for your, your, your client to fire you. Um, and it's also unethical. Um, if you didn't ask, what are you going to use this stuff for? Was he planning on writing a book later? Um, Shapiro come into court unprepared. I noticed that several times. They didn't have the audio on in the court, but he would get there and you would see the frustration on the other lawyers because he was the, the face of the, the trial. You know, he was the head guy who sat in the head guy chair. And he'll come and his paperwork was often um, not in order, um, couldn't find something. I mean, either he had the world's worst paralegal or he was just an uh, um, unprepared person. Judge um, Lance Edo, um, never liked this judge. I, I didn't even know they had Chinese judges for this case, uh, or cops. Um, but Edo should have never sealed the furniture. Um, and it kind of makes you have to look back to who Furman's boss was and who Edo's wife is. Um, would his wife have had a tainted record on the police force if the officers who served under her command had been practicing racism, planting evidence, uh, arresting people unlawfully, uh, which in those cases, um, some of the things he indicated in his case. So it's like almost he's covering for his wife. Um, I thought that at that point, he should have been taken off the case. Um, Jeff Tubin. Uh, loves to use the word nigger. Uh, every time I tried to write the word nigger and write in this, it converted the word to nugget. Brought me back to the NBA guy. Um, but uh, he seems like the type of white person who goes to rap concerts so he can sing along and blurt out the word indiscriminately with no repercussion. Um, I believe this was the origin of the N-word. Um, the media had no other way of um, saying that word without taking the emotions that would come along with it. So they um, came up with the N-word, um, and that sort of just became nigger after that, um, the nice, clean way to say it. Um, this case um, had long-standing effects. Uh, in September 1994, they, because of the domestic abuse um, defense, that the um, prosecutor was using and trying to accuse um, OJ that he was beating this white woman. Um, um, then Senator, now President Biden, sponsored the Violence Against Women Act. This was in 1994. The trial just started. And um, this act could not get any Republican support at all in Congress in 1993. They all voted no. But after the start of the OJ trial, they all voted yes. It got passed unanimously. I'm mean, my line. Thank you. Rental James legislation passed. Let's see. Uh, other folks who dialed in with a hand up, uh, if you have commentary to share, proceed. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Thank you. Um, a second. All right. 
Greetings, Gus. Greetings, listeners and callers. Um, uh, earlier in the program, you said that you um, questioned uh, Gus. You, you, I, I believe you implicated that you questioned Hydra's whiteness uh, because he was French. Um, uh, when you said that, I thought of uh, Romain Gary, white dog, and I also thought of um, Dr. Tyler Perry, uh, a Southern European white. Um, I was so I'm, I'm going to look further into Mr. Hydra just to check his phenotype. I'm gonna see if I can find a picture of him. Um, but um, based on his elusiveness, I, I feel like he is a a white man. Um, I, I only had a couple of quotes from the book. Uh, Many African Americans have a distinct speech pattern. I thought that was very interesting. Um, um, uh, usually, uh, if I am, you know, a, a couple of times I've been accused of talking white, and I'll be like, "So I sound like I'm from a trailer park," you know? So like, you know, it's like you know, the, the, and I, and I do that just because. Uh, I've noticed that white people have interesting speech patterns at times. So I'm quick to say, so I sound like I'm from a trailer park, you know? What do you mean talking white? Um, or do I sound rural? Um, uh, um, now, Lauren, uh, Lauren, Laura met Furman on a pleasant white morning. I thought that was a very interesting quote to to put in the book and how it ended in conversations <clears throat> based around the word nigger. Um, that's all I have. I'm in my line. Thank you. Much obliged. Uh, I think Mr. Heidstra, this should, uh, lot, all of the trial is on YouTube. So certainly there's lots of video of, uh, the days plural when he gave his testimony, but there should be photos of him as well. Uh, just, <clears throat> uh, I suspect he would be accepted as white, but yeah, folks would have to, to take a look, make sure, you know, they think, yes, this is someone who we think would be accepted classified as white right up there with Romaine Gary white and he did have a dog or plural too that he was walking so mm. uh, words super important uh, in the text I'll read a few of my notes we get some of the other folks who dialed in before we push off to audio segment two and our supplementary audio after we actually get to hear uh, once the Furman tapes were introduced so from the sounding uh, black chapter uh, he says that Tubin says that Goldman's family came and they said oh yeah I know that was Ron that sounds just like how he would approach that situation hey 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 I just I don't know I mean you know I guess uh, that does not seem logical to me because that's such a a simple thing it's not very elaborate and I don't even know what was stumbled upon uh, because everybody that's not the conclusion that everybody has uh, about you know what exactly did he hear uh, some people think yes this was him actually hearing Ron Goldman and he's walking in on the murder or whatever and him saying hey 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 and that's it other people think no that's not it other people think that this is the killers plural talking to themselves uh, about whatever 
who was that guy that came in that we had to kill all of a sudden? He wasn't even a part of the plan or whatever. Uh, but how can you even tell? Someone says, hey, hey, hey. And oh, yeah, that was his catchphrase. Hey, hey, hey. Fat Albert did? I mean. Fat Albert. <laughs> you know, you know, was Bill, where was Bill Cosby at when this was, was going down? Can we make sure he was? Incidentally, I did hear audio where Bill Cosby had to get an attitude. There were news reports that he was contributing money to O.J. Simpson's defense. And he said that that is not true. Uh, no one verified it at all. People are just going around spreading these vicious rumors and they don't even have any evidence to verify. Like, I did not contribute any money. Like, there are victims here, the family, their children. Like, it's disgraceful. Like, come on, be better. Bill was outraged. Um, let's see. The Next, he talks about how uh, the prosecution made Hydra such a powerful witness for them. That is absurd. Uh, that's one, I guess, if you watch it, you can conclude, one, is he white or not? Two, uh, he's very definitive that I heard this sometime 1030, maybe a little after 1030, 1035, somewhere in that range, which is way beyond the prosecution's timeline. That's number one. Two, if you think this is the murder. He's here. Even if you think it's Goldman, you think it's the killers, whatever it is, 1030, 1035, anywhere in that range. Again, we're just coming back to logic. Do I think OJ Simpson could logically commit these murders? 1030, 1035 killed two people, able-bodied white people, one male, one female, and then get back to his residence in less than 20 minutes and be outside in front of Allen Park by 1055 not covered in blood he's disposed of the murder weapon never to be found disposed of the bloody Bruno Mogli shoes never to be found cleaned up not out of breath is that possible that he could do that in less than 25 minutes to me, that is straining all kinds of credibility and you have to give me some evidence like, yes, this is how he was able to do that in 25 minutes. And you don't have that in this case. Uh, and, and then he says that Hystra says, well, he could have seen a white Bronco Tubin leaves out. That's why I said, you know, it depends on how important is this? You know, how much information do you need? Hystra testified. They asked him, OK put the map up. Like I said, quarters about details. We're not just going to sit up here and talk. It was comma and wait, da, 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 da. let's put the map up. Bam. Put the X on. Where were you? We got the streets. This is the house. All of that. Okay. Where did you see this vehicle, which he identified as a sport utility vehicle? Even I'll take tube inside. Even if he had said it was a white Bronco, which he did not. But even if he did, we already know AC Cowling white Bronco. Paulo Barbieri, white Bronco. Marcus Allen, white Bronco. Three different people that are associated with this case that we know, or at least that I know, maybe you all don't, have a white Bronco. So even if it had been a white Bronco, like, wow, it seems like a lot of people have white Broncos circa 1994, 95. So even that wouldn't be incriminating. But he didn't even say it was a white Bronco. He just said it looked like a sport utility vehicle. I don't know what type of vehicle it was some type of light colored vehicle all right but more importantly which direction does the vehicle turn does it make a left heading to rockingham mr simpson's residence 
Does it make a right going the wrong way? He says it makes a right. Now it's going to take even more time. So if we got this, if this is what he heard, Hydra, this is happening at 1030, 1035. Now you got even less time because you're not taking the direct route to get to Rockingham. You're going the wrong way. Not a powerful witness. Don't lie, Jeff Tubin. Just let folks watch the trial or whatever, or at least don't leave out important details. Uh, with Hazinga, I find it stunning. Nobody even pauses to say, so did this physician, Hazinga, did this different person, so it's Hydra and then Hazinga, did this physician, who also gets described as a beautiful, blonde, handsome white man, did he describe O.J. Simpson as Tarzan? Repeatedly? No stop, like, wow, the man not, why are we talking about this black male as some sort of jungle figure? It can't just be that he's fit, he's in good shape, he's still athletic. No, he's got to be some beast of the jungle. And then he gets described that way repeatedly. Tarzan's grandfather. So did he, was he walking like Tarzan's grandfather that day? Who you saw him that evening? Did he look like Tarzan's grandfather? Like <sighs> apes, not men, women, apes, animals, coons, alligators, possums, Tarzan. Uh, let's see. Tubin points out many African Americans do have distinctive accents and speech patterns he doesn't say anything about white people in Appalachia the trailer park white people like do white people have distinct distinct speaking patterns like the white people of Beverly Hills 90210 do they have distinct speech patterns or is it just the negress that's what I mean about all of that is racist all of that it wouldn't be any you sounded white and confused me I was about to hire you but we don't hire negress get out of here we don't even hire white sounding negress get out of here that wouldn't exist wouldn't be a, such a thing as a white person can just use slang and be talking black and uh, none of that would exist system of racism white supremacy if we had someone authentically sounding black nigger speech patterns and again why not point out the white speech patterns if you really think all this is legit Jeff Tubin next uh Oh, and then the this is almost played from the FX series because the FX series, they include some of this like verbatim, like exactly from the transcript, the sounded black exchange. And they conclude it. They're sitting down with Judge Ito stomps out like I'm tired of both of y'all contemporary. And he storms out. And so Marsha Clark is talking to Chris Darden. She says, uh, what was that? And he said, he's so cynical. You do have uh speech patterns, black speech patterns and blah, blah, blah. And Marsha Clark says, I know that's true his witness was failing and Johnny throws a racial stink bomb and I cracked up laughing like are you serious racial stink bomb he's not playing the race card he's throwing a racial stink bomb and Jeff Tubin thought that metaphor was so amazing we need to get that in the script make sure you use that again like he stuck his chest out proud racial stink bomb <laughs> get out of you serious the racial stink bomb is yes you negros and your negro speech that is the racist stink bomb I was right there the whole time when I was watching this on the FX it's like objection objection what are you talking about said objection what are you even talking about sounded old what does that mean 
no speculation. Isn't that a, I'm not, I don't have a degree in jurisprudence, but I think they do caution witnesses about speculation. Next. Uh, he goes to Lakshmanan again. This is important. He uh, really does not give all the detail around this. Erwin Golden is the white doctor who performed the autopsy. He testified at the preliminary hearing. And in fact, one of the other things, Golden testified that it looked like it could have been two different knives that were used in the killing, which would suggest two different killers. You generally don't have one killer with one knife in the left hand and then a different type of knife in the right hand simultaneously stabbing uh, and killing people. That generally doesn't happen. Uh, there were many reasons why he didn't testify at the trial after his performance at the preliminary hearing. Uh, but Tuvan says Lakshmanan used too much guesswork in, recon- in reconstructing the crime. And as for the detective's failures to call the coroner immediately after discovering the bodies, which was a subject the defense lawyers had dwelled on for many hours with the police witnesses, Baden had the integrity to admit under cross-examination that it would not have made any difference in determining the time of death. Uh, there were many other problems uh, with Lakshmanan's uh, testimony. Uh, he says, uh, as I just said, the, he writes, Tubin writes, the only evidence of a second killer was this possible, not definite, single shoe print. Wrong. As I just said, Erwin Golden, this is the coroner, testified at the preliminary hearing. Looks like these wounds could have been caused by two different knives. That was one right there. And they had fingerprints. From the crime scene, they had a, I forgot the exact number, but it was a high number of fingerprints. They never identified. They weren't attributable to Mr. Simpson, any of the police detectives, coroners, folks who were in doing field work. They have no idea whose prints these were. That might also suggest something. Next. He said, Tubin says, uh, not since not since Ron Ship's pathetic visit to the stand was there so vivid a reminder of the empty world of O.J. Simpson. I think if you're being led into a courtroom daily in shackles and prison fatigues, that is about the biggest reminder in the world of how empty and pathetic your world is. I think anything else would be a distant second to that. I could be wrong. Uh the physical ability, I think that's so important. He says even a layman could tell such a claim that O.J. didn't have the physical ability to do these crimes uh, was absurd. Despite his lingering football injuries, Simpson was bigger, stronger and fitter than most people in the United States. What Heisinga's testimony did demonstrate was the extraordinary extent of Simpson's self-pity. Stop right there. Number one, I said before, Tubin is such a liar. He leaves out the video from the recital. It shows OJ going to pick up his son he has a hitch in his back it looks like he does have some sort of physical problem now again this is picking up a child looks like he's probably 12 10 somewhere in that range not a 25 year old grown man in good physical condition and if you're looking like you're having a problem hoisting him you're telling me you're going to go engage in a life and death struggle with someone who's 25 years younger than you. The other thing that they leave out about that fitness video. Yes, he makes absolutely disgusting remark about uh joke uh, about domestic violence. First time, last time. 
he also makes a number of comments about, ooh, I can't do this position because of my knees. Ooh, I can't do this one because of my knees. Gotta watch this one. Can't even bend my knee like that. That happens repeatedly. In fact, the defense says, hey, if we're going to show the video, let's make sure we show the whole thing so that we can see about his physical difficulties. You're telling me, and in fact, for him to say, uh, you can see O.J. Simpson doing push-ups and stomping. This is like a cardio workout. Like, I'm sure you could insert yeah, 60-year-old, 70-year-old, and have them in there and do some of this stuff, marching in place step maybe some jumping jacks you come down do some push-ups some of them are doing the push-ups on their knees so i mean it's not like you know they're lifting uh 150 pound weights doing headstands it's not like they're doing any of that at all like come on anyway uh and again he says rob hazenga with all his fancy credentials was willing to sacrifice his objectivity his probity and even his dignity to ingratiate himself with a famous man even one accused of murder again this is the guy who called oj simpson tarzan on the stand repeatedly i'll add also the importance uh rob shapiro asked Robert Heisinga to come in and do the examination of OJ Simpson just before he was arrested. That was why there was a rush for all of this, but it was important. He didn't point out injuries of a life and death struggle. OJ Simpson had these cuts on his hands. Uh, Heisinga testified. These seem to be superficial cuts consistent with uh, a glass cut that cut on the finger that they were talking about and not one shred of evidence. If O.J. Simpson cut his hands, he had a life and death struggle in slaughtering Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Goldman. How is it that he emerges from this with nothing but these superficial cuts on his left hand? And if he did, how did he cut his finger? Did Ron Goldman have keys? Did he have a knife? Did he take the knife from O.J. and do it? Like, how? questions we would like answered if OJ did this Uh, let's see anything else Thomas in New York yes um, I was listening to your your comments Mike Brown looks like the incredible Hulk Samir Rice 12 years old looks like a 30 year old black man OJ at 50, who couldn't even pick his daughter up at the recital hall. He could catch two able-bodied white people, almost 20 years younger than him. One's a, one's a crackhead, and the other one, every picture you see him, he has on a sweat beard, but he's obviously sick. It's possible, like, um, uh, I remember a comedian around this time saying, why didn't he just run behind the car? You know, and every time OJ went one way, I'll be back around the other way. Like, we did when we were kids. Like, you know, it was funny, but obviously that would be the obvious thing. I'll be running around in a circle. You would never catch me. Um, it just doesn't seem logical unless black people, OJ could put on a frog suit and get superpower strength and ability to now be 25-year-old OJ. It doesn't, it doesn't add up in logical um Just trying to follow logic. I get the other callers. I just want to add in really quick. Uh, 
Tubin says, much obliged, Thomas, in New York. I've, I've said that the way that they describe, the way Mark Furman describes O.J. Simpson, it's very similar, as he said, to the way that we hear black people get described all the time. Superhuman, animals, beasts, all the rest of it. Uh, Tubin says he's talking about the defense witnesses, and he leaves out some of the important uh, Brentwood witnesses, ear witnesses who hear this dog and noises later than 1015, around 1030, 1035, which again is that logical? Do we think O.J. Simpson or anybody could do this crime and get back to the Rockingham estate in 20 minutes or less and be like chill, not bloody, clean, calm, not sweating and evidence disposed of ready to roll in 18 minutes? Does that seem feasible? Anywho, but he says what many of the witnesses had in common was that their testimony pained them, embarrassed them or otherwise diminish them. uh, Henry Lee, he was asked to come back and testify again and he refused. He said, hey, I did the OJ experience once. I've had my time. It was not fun having people be camped out on your yard because you were involved in this trial and being harassed, having your family harassed and going through your whole background. It was not exactly a fun experience uh, for many folks, but I mean, I do not think uh, Henry Lee, Michael Baden, Uh, trying to think of other uh, Robert Heidstra I do not think there's any evidence uh, that these folks were so-called embarrassed pinged diminished uh, about going to testify as I said it did seem like many folks were not pleased people who testify for the prosecution the defense were not pleased about being involved in this for a variety even jurors were not pleased about being involved in this for a variety of Uh, of reasons understandably so Uh, other folks who dialed in with commentary uh, proceed hello Uh, Irie in Louisiana yes ma'am salutations Uh, I wanted to add something Um, I want to oh um, I want to um I hope I'm not going crazy. I think I heard something. But um, I want to look at him put on the glove uh, again today and on YouTube, and it recommended a video that I think you'd be interested in, uh, you guys and people listening. It's on a channel called The Infographics Show, and it's titled, Did OJ Commit Those Murders? Question mark. I have not watched it. It's a 16 minute, 58 second video. Um, obviously, it's infographic, so it's entertainment mixed with um, information. And I'm air quoting using that word. So <laughs> I don't think non white people, unfortunately, I expect white people not to be interested in um, knowing the truth and, and getting into the nuances of the case. But it's interesting because non-white people have really written him off. And I was looking at some of the comments, like, so, for instance, there's uh, a suspected racist. He's got Jim Carrey as his avatar. But it says if the Rodney King thing didn't happen, O.J. would have gone to prison and we would have never heard of the Kardashians. Crazy domino effect. So... You have an instance of a white person blaming the Rodney King, Rodney King, ultimately, for John, uh, for, um, excuse me, O.J. Simpson, 
and then and then these white women uh, who are terrorizing black men uh, as a career on television. But then the non-white people are saying like this. It's one uh, young lady uh, in her avatar. She's like, he literally wrote a book that says, uh, if I did it. And then I see other people bringing it up as well. Um, there are some people talking about um, the corruption of the police, um, but it's very seldom. And everybody, everybody's like, "Look, we don't, we don't want anything to do." Like, yeah, he did it. I don't even have to watch the video. And um, I don't know. It's just, it's sad. But I think also because of how long ago it happened and everything. You know, it'll just get be harder for people to care. I was even surprised that this came up as a book in the book club. But like you said, with um, with that, the author doing something nasty um, for his colleagues to see it wouldn't have never been brought up and we wouldn't have never read the book. I personally never believed in his guilt um, because of things I had seen and heard over the years. And it just didn't make sense to me, even as a youth. Uh, what I was able to capture um, on TV when I would be at home or listening to adults speak about it. You know, so I never thought he was guilty, but every, apparently everybody else does and a lot of black people do. And I don't, I did uh, tag your the show um, in somebody's comment. And I said, hey, if you're really interested, start this book, uh, listen to this book with this, uh, with this uh, podcast started from the beginning we haven't replied but it's really sad what they've done and like I like I said before it's my suspicion OJ is just one of the many black men that when they get to a certain point financially um and they start to um enter in these tragic arrangements they want to punish these non-white black men by recapturing their wealth through these criminal cases and or or you know bankrupting them you know just ruining their name on top of it and i'll meet my line much obliged Irie in louisiana um see if i can grab our other folks quick before we get to our second audio segment uh other folks that we missed did you have commentary may i be heard greetings mr blue yes sir Greetings, Gus. Greetings to all the guests. Um, just thinking about what you just said and about what some of the other callers just said, but one point in part one point in particular. Can you still hear me? Yes, Hello? sir. Yes, sir. Okay. Okay. My phone. I just want technical difficulties. Um, thinking about what you all just said and. Also, that I was around and I was interested in the trial. I didn't get to see all of it. And now listening to the book and um, knowing Jeffrey Tubin's um, history, but it never, it, it, you know, just like with so many things within the system of racism, white supremacy, if you don't follow the logic, anything that they can say, and because they have so many resources, they can start to sway your opinion towards, um, towards an anti-black, you know, anti-black thought um, when the victim is being on, put on trial and there's news and it's a high-profile victim. Many people like Michael Jackson, um, Bill Cosby, just so many, especially black entertainers 
and musicians and figures that have risen in the system to attain a lot of wealth and money. But it never really seemed logical that this one man could take down one, a, a younger um, so-called white person who was an athlete younger than him and his wife at the same time and do so much damage and not have the same amount of damage inflicted upon his body with trying to kill two people at the same time and not having, I mean, those type of battle scars and some type of scars and some type of damage, physical damage to his body that would show that this person actually killed two people. It, it never stuck with me as being something that could actually be accomplished by one person one person alone. And then when they start to make reference, like they've made reference to so many other black males in particular, that um, the hulking figure, Tarzan, gorillas, um, even in today's football jargon, calling many of the football players beast, you know, the beast mode and things like that. Um, they put that psychology and that thought into people's heads, but never when you sit down and actually think about it logically, trying to overcome and then kill two people is not a simple task. It's not an easy thing to do. Um, being someone uh, myself that has been involved in um, martial arts and just boxing, these are physical things that just one, you know, trying to do one person is, is a supreme physical act, but trying to subdue and also kill two people is just, out of the realm of possibility when you're just one man and one person. And then also thinking about when they start using black men um, to, to distract us with whatever going on behind the scenes, either in politics or globally dealing within the system of racism, white supremacy. And when they used um, Bill Cosby in the midst of the Michael Brown, um, in the midst of the Michael Brown murder and the uprisings and all the protesting. And then out of nowhere, it was once again, oh, Bill Cosby, this time we're going to prosecute him. And now they totally distracted everyone from, from what was actually going on, the issues that were going on, to now let's look at this black male, this affluent black male. Now let's look at him and let's prosecute him for all the wrongs that he has done. But then you have someone like Jeffrey Tubin who's probably been doing multiple, many of those things before Zoom and now post-Zoom. And, you know, he gets his book and all these things. So I'm just always fascinated at the depths of treachery that racist white supremacists will go to to defame and destroy um, non-white non-white people and particularly non-white black people and in particular non-white black men. I mean, my line, thank you. Thank you. Everyone have a good night. Much obliged, Mr. Blue, with us at our retreat down in Florida. Uh, we will pause here. We'll nab other folks who dialed in with a hand up uh, just so we can get our second audio segment. Now, I said we do have audio supplements this week, so we'll hear the rest of this chapter. We'll get to hear uh, the actual Furman tapes and what happened in court and all of that. Um, and then we'll once that portion is done, right, we'll hear an audio segment from the ESPN documentary, 
uh, that'll play and then we'll hear uh, another portion from the OJ 25 series which is like recent that was just from this past summer uh, Mark Furman is in there uh, you'll get to hear uh, Detective Lang uh, you'll get to hear F. Lee Bailey like lots of the people that were uh, involved in the case pay attention to some of the metaphors that Mark Furman uses when he talks about the audio tape and what ha- it's fascinating fascinating Whoa. Ready to roll. Uh, this is continuing uh, the chapter from Jeffrey Tubin's The Run of His Life, Manna from Heaven, The Furman Tapes, Context of White Supremacy, audio segment two. When lawyers from both sides finally sat down to listen to the tapes, they were struck by something besides Furman's bigotry. Everyone also noticed the references to Margaret York who was Furman's one-time commander in the West Los Angeles Division and Lance Ito's wife. York had been one of the early female recruits to the LAPD, and in true Los Angeles fashion, a model for the television series Cagney and Lacey. In keeping with his role in McKinney's project, Furman had exoriated women police officers in general, but also, it turned out, York in particular. Among other things, Furman said on the tape that the judge's wife had sucked and fucked her way to the top. The lawyers brought this to Ito's attention in chambers on August 14th. The issue was further clouded by the fact that earlier in the case, York had filed a declaration in the Simpson trial saying that she remembered little about Furman, except that he was once one of the officers under her command. As Cochran put it gently to Ito, this is a very delicate issue. It is going to have to do with credibility because, you know, her declaration. This guy, unless he is absolutely lying, and Marsha will back me up on this, the contacts he has with Lieutenant York are the kind that are very hard to forget him. In other words, as some lawyers on both sides came to believe, York may have lied in her sworn statement that she didn't remember Furman. The tape's issue thus quickly became one of daunting complexity, as were the party's motives. The judge went right to the heart of the issue when he asked, in chambers, Is there a conflict for me to hear this issue? Right, said Clark. Which is a significant legal issue, Ito continued, because we may be talking mistrial. With the tapes in hand, the defense felt the best thing it could do was press on for a verdict in front of this judge and this jury. The prosecutors did not want to prompt a mistrial that might potentially, under the double jeopardy clause of the Constitution, prevent a retrial. But Clark in particular had come to loathe Ito with a passion. By coincidence, right around this time, Clark and I were chatting in the hallway, and she launched into a lengthy tirade about the judge the worst judge I've ever been in front of, and the worst possible judge for this case, totally intimidated by Johnny, a total starfucker. But she and the other prosecutors also realized that it was almost impossible to bring a new judge into such a complex case at this late date. And then there was Ito, a decent man. He mostly wanted to do the right thing under the law, though it was far from clear what that was. He had come to have an almost schizophrenic reaction to the media attention that the case had brought him. True, at times, he reveled in it, 
but at the same time Ito suffered at the many and ever-increasing critiques of his performance. Now his wife was being dragged into the mess. The pressure nearly drove him to snap. After devoting nearly the entire next morning, August 15th, to listening in silence to Clark and Cochrane's rancorous arguments about how to handle the issue of his wife's involvement, Ito made up his mind. Staring at his notes, he said, When a concern is raised regarding a court's ability to be fair and impartial, it is not the actual existence of impartiality or partiality that is the issue. It's the appearance. Ito paused gathering himself, the silence a reminder of how wrenching the experience had become for him. When he resumed, his voice was thick with emotion. I love my wife dearly. He struggled to collect himself. And I am wounded by criticism of her, as any spouse would be. And I think it is reasonable to assume that that could have some impact. As I mentioned, women in male-dominated professions learn to deal with this, and those who are successful, I think we all observe, are tougher than most. Ito implied winningly that they are tougher than their husbands, too. Ito did not recuse himself from the case, at least not yet. He said, in effect, that another judge should review the tapes and determine if Ito could still preside. The entire courtroom then picked up and moved in a motley caravan up two flights to the courtroom of Judge James Baskew, the chief criminal judge of the Superior Court. Baskew assigned the case to Judge John Reed in the courtroom next door. There was a revealing moment in Baskew's brief tenure on the case. Though famously tough on crime and ordinary circumstances, Judge Baskew couldn't resist trying to banter a little with Simpson about football. Striking and distasteful, evidence of the effect of sports celebrity on middle-aged men. Judge Reed, in turn, agreed to examine the tapes, and then sent the case back to Ito to continue the trial. This extraordinary merry-go-round, three judges in an hour, with the jury all the while sitting around and doing nothing, underlined just how anarchic the case had become. The following morning, in an off-the-record session in Judge Ito's chambers, the prosecution's frustrations surfaced. Sitting around Ito's desk with the defense attorneys, Darden said, Judge, I haven't vented in a long time, and I'd like to vent. He complained that the judge had interrupted and embarrassed prosecution lawyers in front of the jury. We don't like that, Darden said. With the issue of Ito's recusal still hanging in the air, it looked like Darden was trying to intimidate the judge. After Darden's tirade, the defense lawyers bolted out of chambers and asked to go on the record in open court. There, Shapiro recounted the episode and said he was going to complain to the state bar. Such a remedy might have been excessive, but Shapiro's complaint about Darden certainly did have merit. Now it was Darden's turn to become nearly unhinged. Your Honor, Darden said, voice quavering, I'm so offended at Mr. Shapiro's remarks, remarks that I'm sure are being fed to him by Mr. Cochran. I'm so offended by those remarks that I would rather not stand at the same podium at which he stood a few moments ago. Like a child fearing cooties, Darden kept his distance from the wooden stand. Now, if Mr. Shapiro or Mr. Cochran want to refer me to the state bar, fine. 
because when this case is over, I'm going to be referring the defense attorneys to the United States Attorney's Office. Cochran laughed audibly at this preposterous suggestion. And he chuckles now, Darden went on, but will he be chuckling later on? It won't be so funny later on. They don't know everything that I know. One can scarcely imagine more reckless behavior by a law enforcement official than Darden's empty threats, based on secret information, to report an adversary for a crime. Yet the defense did not even complain because Darden was so obviously just posturing. Needless to say, Darden never reported anything to the U.S. Attorney's Office. Notwithstanding the questions about the ethics of the defense lawyers in this case, no one could say that they had committed any federal crimes. And all this distress for the prosecution came even before the judge decided when, or if, to play the tapes in public. Cochran kept the pressure on. His experience told him that organized political pressure to release the tapes had to accompany general public outrage about them. When Cochran's client, Michael Jackson, was under investigation in February 1994, the lawyer had orchestrated a news conference of black ministers to call on Gil Garcetti to conclude his investigation of the singer. On August 28, 1995, much the same coalition was reassembled, this time to call for Judge Ito to release the Furman tapes to the public. The heavily attended media event was spearheaded by Danny Bakewell, head of the Los Angeles civil rights organization known as Brotherhood Crusade. This was the same Bakewell who had, less than a year earlier, bestowed on Cochran his organization's annual award, hailing the lawyer as a tireless warrior against those who would deny justice for all. Commenting on the Furman tapes, Bakewell predicted dire results if the tapes were not released. This community is a powder keg, Bakewell said, capable of repeating the actions of 1992, that is, the riots that had followed the acquittal of the LAPD officers who beat Rodney King. Bakewell's rhetoric was pure racial extortion. Release the tapes, or else... The political maelstrom left Ito little choice when the issue was finally posed to him the next day, August 29th. The prosecution had entertained a vain hope that Ito would at least decide the tape's issue without first playing them in public. But when weighing that decision, Ito addressed the general outcry about the tapes directly. I think that there is an overriding public interest in the nature of the offer that you are making. Ito told the defense in a hearing before the television cameras but outside the presence of the jury, and I don't want this court to ever be in a position where there is any indication that this court would participate in suppressing information that is of vital public interest. The judge allowed the defense to play the portions of the tapes they wanted the jury to hear. With that decision by Ito, all of the defense work, from Schiller's leaks to Bakewell's threats, had paid off. In the courtroom that day, the first few examples from the tapes were fairly straightforward, brief sentence fragments of Furman's familiar voice. You do what you're told, understand, nigger? Female officers, he said, don't do anything. They don't go out there and initiate a contact with a six-foot-five nigger that's been in prison for seven years, pumping weights. And these niggers, they run like rabbits. Of course, these snippets were bad enough, but then... 
Late in the morning session, Ullman began to play the tape of what appeared to be Furman's recounting of an incident that had happened to him in the field. It was, according to Furman on the tape, a real heavy investigation, 66 allegations of brutality, assault and battery under color of authority, torture, all kinds of stuff. Then Furman's disembodied voice described for the silent courtroom what had happened. Two of my buddies were shot and ambushed, policemen. Both alive, and I was the first unit on the scene. Four suspects ran into a second story in an apartment project. Apartment. We kicked the door down. We grabbed a girl that lived there, one of their girlfriends, grabbed her by the hair and stuck a gun to her head and used her as a barricade. Walked up and told them, I've got this girl. I'll blow her fucking brains out if you come out with a gun. Held her like this. Threw the bitch down the stairs. Deadbolted the door. Let's play, boys. On the tape, McKinney interrupted to ask whether she could use this incident in the movie. It hasn't been seven years, statute of limitations, Furman cautioned. I have three hundred and something pages of internal affairs investigation just on that one incident. I got several other ones. I must have about three thousand or four thousand pages internal affairs investigations out there. Then Furman resumed his narration of the event. Anyway, we basically tortured them. There was four policemen, four guys. We broke them, numerous bones in each one of them. Their faces were just mush. They had pictures on the walls. There was blood all the way to the ceiling with finger marks like they were trying to crawl out of the room. They showed us pictures of the room. It was unbelievable. There was blood everywhere. All the walls, all the furniture, all the floor. It was just everywhere. These guys, they had to shave so much hair off one guy, they shaved it all off, like 70 stitches in his head. You know, knees cracked. Oh, it was just... We had him begging that they'd never be gang members again, begging us. So with 66 allegations, I had a demonstration in front of Hollenbeck Station, chanting my name. Captain had to take them all into roll call. And that's where the internal affairs investigation started. It lasted 18 months. I was on a photo lineup. Suspect lineup. I was picked out by 12 people, so I was pretty proud of that. I was the last one interviewed. The prime suspect is always the last one interviewed. They didn't get any of our unit, 38 guys. They didn't get one day of docked pay. I didn't get one day. The custodian, the jailer of the sheriff's department, got five days, since he beat one of the guys at the very end. Immediately after we beat those guys, we went downstairs to the garden hose in the back of the place. We washed our hands. We had blood all over our legs, everything. With a dark blue uniform, you know, and in the dark you can't see it. But when you get in the light and it looks like somebody took red paint and painted it all over you. We had to clean our badges off with water. There was blood all over them. Our faces had blood on them. We had to clean all that. We checked each other, then we went out. We were directing traffic and the chiefs and everything were coming down because two officers were shot. Where are the suspects? And they took them to the station. Somehow, nobody knows who arrested them. We handcuffed them and threw them down two flights of stairs, you know. That's how they came. That's where a lot of people saw, you know, look out, here comes one. Oh my God, look out, he's falling. I mean, you don't shoot a policeman. That's all there is to it. When this taped excerpt ended, Lance Ito's courtroom was as quiet as it had ever been over the previous year. Then there was a sound. K-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1
Kim Goldman started to cry. At last, Jerry Ullman asked McKinney, Do you have a particularly vivid memory of that account? Of course, she said. Why is that? It's, um, it's vividly described. Judge Ito broke for lunch. Cochran's colleagues had never seen him behave the way he did when Lance Ito's ten-page ruling slipped out of the fax machine on August 31st. Cochran was distraught, speechless, despairing. In what seemed to be a shocking blow to the defense, Ito ruled that he would allow only two brief excerpts of the Furman tapes to be played. We have no niggers where I grew up, and that's where niggers live. In lieu of playing the tapes, he would allow McKinney to tell the jury that Furman had said nigger 41 times on the tapes. Ito found that everything else on the tapes was either irrelevant to the Simpson case or unduly prejudicial to the prosecution. Cochran proceeded to an impromptu news conference on the ground floor of his office building on Wilshire Boulevard. Wearing an electric blue sports jacket over a black shirt buttoned at the neck with a jeweled clasp, Cochran denounced Ito in a most personal way. Surrounded by nearly a dozen colleagues on the defense team, but not Shapiro. Cochran called Ito's ruling, perhaps one of the cruelest, unfairest decisions ever rendered in a criminal court. He declared, the cover-up continues. This inexplicable, indefensible ruling lends credence to all those who say the criminal justice system is corrupt. And in a lightly veiled reference to Bakewell's incendiary threats of earlier in the week, Cochran said, so all of the citizens in Los Angeles they should remain calm. Having stung Cochran in print, Ito still could not stand up to him in person. The next day in court, Friday, September 1st, Cochran essentially went on strike. The defense team was supposed to continue to call witnesses, but Cochran simply refused to continue the trial, in protest against the judge's rulings on the tapes. A tougher judge might simply have declared the defense case concluded and moved on to the prosecution rebuttal. But Cochran intimidated Ito too much for that. The judge simply and meekly informed the jury, which had heard scarcely any evidence in a week because of the tapes controversy, that the trial was breaking early for Labor Day weekend. By this point, Furman had retained a criminal defense lawyer, who wisely advised him to take the Fifth Amendment rather than answer any more questions in the case. The tapes had raised a real possibility that he might be prosecuted for perjury, or even for the crimes he had told McKinney he committed. When Furman returned to the courthouse to take the witness stand once again, he answered each of Ullman's queries with invocations of his right to remain silent. As was customary, Ito did not allow the jury to see Furman take the fifth. Darden and his student clerks, the only African Americans on the prosecution team, were not present when Furman returned to appear before Judge Ito. At long last on September 6th, the jury heard McKinney and the two short excerpts from the tape. Ironically, the highlight of the day for the defense was not the playing of the tapes, which the jurors absorbed impassively, but rather Darden's inept cross-examination of McKinney. Darden belittled McKinney's credentials, questioned her motives, and generally treated her as if it were she, and not prosecution witness Furman, who had done something wrong. 
Stung by Darden's hostility, McKinney blurted out at one point, Why are we having this adversarial relationship? Several jurors nodded, apparently wondering the same thing. After the trial, most of the jurors said that the McKinney tapes had had little impact on their verdict. Even if one accepts this at face value, the tapes still had an enormous influence on the trial. The entire gestalt of the case was transformed. Because the tapes established definitively that Furman had lied about using the word nigger, the prosecution had to abandon its categorical defense of him. This was true even after Ito's unduly restrictive ruling regarding playing the tapes in front of the jury. Furman's damaged credibility, in turn, made it that much harder for the prosecution to argue that all the other LAPD officers were telling the truth. In terms of the courtroom chess match, the damage to the prosecution from the tapes was probably as great as from Darden's glove demonstration. The tapes also loom as an important historical artifact beyond the give-and-take of this trial. It may never be possible to sort out how much of Furman's narrative was literally true. In the aftermath of the case, the LAPD and the United States Attorney in Los Angeles launched investigations based on the tapes. Furman's extraordinary account of the beating of suspects following the shooting of two police officers did appear to be loosely based on a real event that occurred in 1978. But his version had fictional aspects as well. However, the tapes also pointed to larger truths. Maw existed. Mark Furman and others like him thrived in the LAPD. Ultimately, it is not surprising that black jurors decide to punish the police for its sorry past, and that, alas, O.J. Simpson turned out to be the undeserving beneficiary of this ignoble tale. After McKinney's brief turn on the stand, the defense closed its case with three more witnesses who testified that they had heard Furman use the word nigger. As if this were not enough, the defense team decided to send one final nonverbal message. When Ito said he would not tell the jury that Furman had refused to testify further, Cochran arranged for the entire defense team to wear ties made from African kente cloth in protest, in front of the jury, no less. Ito could have stopped them. Very early in the trial, the judge had told the prosecutors that they could not wear angel pins in solidarity with the victims of the case, even though, unlike the kente cloth ties, the pins bore no provocative message. But on the day the defense team wore the ties, Judge Ito had only this to say to the first defense lawyer to appear before him. Nice tie. Mark Furman audio tapes that threw the O.J. Simpson case into chaos are now causing a lot of trouble inside the Los Angeles Police Department. We learned more today about what's on those tapes. Correspondent Bill Whitaker reports tonight on fact, fiction, and Furman. Furman claims his startling accounts of police brutality were fiction for a screenplay, but at least one may be fact. Simpson documents show the retired detective boasted on the tapes that police in the LAPD Hollenbeck Division retaliating for the shooting of two officers, quote, beat people until their faces turned to mush. Police now are investigating whether a 1978 shooting of two police at this housing project in the same division is that incident. Officer Furman 
was among the officers who responded to that particular event. Court documents obtained by CBS News show a suspect in that shooting later sued the city for police brutality. It was a big story at the time. One of those beaten by police that day was Alberto Morales. Exactly, that's what my face was, a bloody pope. I mean, I was, I was hit more than once with the, with the revolver. I counted two, who knows. In another incident, the city just a few months ago quietly settled an old lawsuit by Joseph Britton, who claims Furman shot at him, then planted a knife to justify it. My theory is that the city didn't want to have uh, Furman exposed to the cross-examination in our case, in which we had um, a lot more damaging evidence on him than uh, um, the dream team. This in a city still recovering from the King beating and riots. And the issue here is Kim Goldman, Patty Goldman, Fred Goldman, and the Brown family. The issue here is whether this defendant killed Nicole Brown or Ron Goldman or not. The issue here isn't my ethics. The issue here isn't racism. Okay. Um. Ron and Nicole were butchered by their client. Do any of you believe otherwise? You have seen the evidence in this trial. It is overwhelming. This is not now the Furman trial. This is a trial about the man that murdered my son. How dare they take the position that all they want to do is prove perjury. They are liars. Is to prove perjury? Are we all fools? Do they take us all for morons? We all know what they want is to inflame the, the emotions of the jury and to inflame anyone's minds, the public's minds, with issues that don't relate to this trial. How offensive, okay, to the human race to not give them the benefit of the doubt that they would be able to try this case according to the facts and according to the evidence and not have to put in the crap of the racial bias. Okay, that's insulting to people's intelligence. I don't care what color you are, what race you are, what religion you practice, that's insulting. When Marsha Clark had this hot potato, the tapes came out. They're going to impeach me. I have to take the stand again. Okay, I'll take the stand again. I fly to LA, they put me up in, a, in a, an apartment close to the courthouse. I have security, which, I'll, which kind of made me laugh. I had four security, I go, what are you guys doing? We're gonna protect you, from what? And he goes, well, we don't know. All I did was try to get a hold of Marsha Clark so we could discuss this impending testimony. The message I left her once was, hey, look, I'll follow my sword for you. We just need to have some tactics so everybody knows how it's going to go down. So at least I can be confident enough for an objection or something, some help. You can't let me be butchered by the defense. She would never return my call. Good afternoon, Detective. 
Good afternoon, Your Honor. Uh, you're reminded, sir, that you were still under oath. Mr. Ullman, you may proceed. Detective Furman, uh, was the testimony that you gave at the preliminary hearing in this case completely truthful? I uh, was walking towards the, uh, the vehicle, the Bronco. I saw a red stain above the chrome handle to the driver's door, and I believe that to be blood. I got a better view of it uh, a, li a little later, and then I saw when I was a few feet away that it was a glove. Was the testimony that you gave truthful? I wish to assert my Fifth Amendment privilege. Have you ever falsified a police report? I wish to assert my Fifth Amendment privilege. When they wouldn't talk to me, I had no choice. I had to take the Fifth or else I would have been, a, I'd still be on the stand. They'd still be beating me up. I mean, it's, of course, that's ridiculous, but it would be impossible to survive that. You have nobody there. It's almost like somebody's in an interrogation room, you know, constantly pounding you and you have no constitutional rights. You can do nothing and you think the judge is going to do anything. He actually allowed this. Furman is his own worst enemy. But he came along and took a big dump right on the top of this case and ended it when he pled the fifth. You say, hell no, I didn't plant evidence. Who in hell do you think you are telling me that? I don't plant evidence. That's how you respond. Not on the advice of counsel, I plead the Fifth Amendment. I think the whole theory of planning the evidence was just a pipe dream. If you recognize that in total, I think the total number of police and police personnel that were at the scene were something like 30. In theory, Mark finds it and decides without ever knowing whether the killer had a airtight alibi or not to take it to his home and plant it, which would have put every single person, police personnel, at risk of losing their job, pension, etc. It's just beyond comprehension that they would have all been willing to be complicit in this act, in that act. I, it's just absurd to me. When Mark Furman took the fifth over the N-word and the tapes, um, I was super mad, um, felt incredibly betrayed. Um, I had defended him, um, backed him up. I, I respected him. I admired him. Um, I believed him. But taking the fifth, I think, just negated everything before. Um, just own it. Is it your intention to assert your Fifth Amendment privilege with respect to all questions that I ask you? Yes. You have this Mark Furman um, incident that has really torpedoed the case. You have Furman pleading the fifth, which means he doesn't want to incriminate himself. So now it's like, did he plant the evidence? Did he not plant the evidence? That's what sunk Mark Furman. You know, that really is what sunk the case. You are left with the self-incrimination clause, which stops the questioning at that point. It also opens up a giant Pandora's box. They knew that Marcia Clark was not going to do anything. She sat there like uh, like she was doing her nails. She was twisting her seat. I was looking right at She would not even look. I only have one other question. What was that, Mr. Furman? Uh, Detective Furman, did you plant or manufacture any evidence in this case? I assert my Fifth Amendment privilege. When I pled the fifth on one question, 
they put that on specifically because they knew I had to say that because once you answer anything, anything, now your Fifth Amendment privilege is gone. All right. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Your Honor. All of us on the team felt like he had completely betrayed the integrity of the case and, and the evidence, and he was not welcome in that process anymore pretty much after that. I had just been disgusted with this individual for a lot of reasons, but he got himself into this. Nobody did this. Furman did this to himself. The first level on perjury is it has to be relevant. Does it go to the, the matter of fact in the case? And then is it material? Would it go to prove or disprove the guilt or innocence of the defendant? Well, it's, you don't have to be but in law school for 15 minutes before you can answer that. The only guy I know of, certainly in my career, that's ever pleaded guilty to perjury in a murder trial while the trial was going on, being the lead witness cop. That was a tumultuous event right out of Perry Mason. I couldn't have scripted it any better. I should have fought it. I should have sold my house and used every dime I had. But even when my attorney says, you fight this, we're looking at $100,000 before we even get close. Hindsight's 2020. It's either that or I should have never been born, one or the other. <laughs> As the court may have already noticed, we have sat here, we have taken it on the chin. I think the defense has clearly established that Furman is a racist. I, I won't lower myself to grovel about if I'm a racist or I'm not. I, I live with my own mistakes. I was the most investigated law enforcement officer in the history of the United States. They filled a room the size of this area where Cardboard boxes, every arrest and every report I ever wrote, they went through every one. What did they find? No racism. Not a word. Not a peep. You're saying what's on those tapes is not reflective of your attitudes or your experiences. I don't know how you feel or see me, but I can tell you this. You would be shocked if you saw me in the field. I was so fair, beyond, beyond all scope of what you had to be. Fighting? I didn't use tasers. I didn't use sticks. When I fought a suspect, I fought straight up. I was fair on the street. There was a time that I was pretty violent. But that was long before I was in the police department. The wisdom of psychopaths. What saints, spies, and serial killers can teach about success. Context of white supremacy. I've never in my life a white man, he is going to, you know, impress upon me that he is not racist. And this response involves, hey, 
when I was a police officer, I didn't use a taser. I didn't use a nigger knocker. <laughs> Fight with my hands. Fair. I was fair. The wisdom of psychopaths. Our caller asked about Christopher Darden. You did hear Christopher Darden uh, within that segment. You heard a little bit from the ESPN documentary Made in America. Uh, you heard a little bit from OJ25, the court uh, court TV uh, series from this past summer, 25 years since the trial. There was a little bit from Brian Heiss's segment on the Furman Tapes documentary mashup of a, a number of different reports. The caller that asked now, what did Christopher Darden sound like after the Furman tapes were played in trial? This will be our final audio segment for the week. This is directly from the trial. So as you heard in the book, the defense, they called a number of white witnesses, Laura Harton McKinney, uh, singer Kathleen Bell, uh, Natalie Singer, Kathleen Bell, Laura Hart McKinney. These are all white women that they called to testify. Yes, we heard Mark Furman say nigger, all kinds of racist things, blah, 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 blah. They say we have a black witness as well uh, to testify that, yes, Furman called him a nigger. Uh, and, you know, we've had all these white witnesses. We have a black witness, too. So you'll get to hear. And the black witness, his name is Roderick Hodge. So you'll get to hear Christopher Darden's response in trying to see if they can stop additional witnesses from having to come and testify that, yes, Mark Furman is a racist. This is Christopher Darden. He is the only uh, witness we have, the only African-American we have, who can refute uh, Furman's uh, insistence that he never addressed any African-American with this word. The only one. Everybody else is white. Is that it? That's, that's it for right now. Mr. Darden. Well, I think we've spread a, enough venom around uh, for one day and for one trial, Judge. Um, as I said before, we have not challenged, we did not challenge the earlier witnesses' assertion that Furman used uh, these epithets. I mean, just, just reflect on the things uh, you have allowed this jury to hear as they relate to uh, Furman's racial animus. And I'm sure the court noted that throughout that testimony, each of these jurors, uh, well, they were writing like crazy. They were, it seemed as if, as if they wrote down each and every word, as if they hung on each and every word. And at some point, you know, I, I think the court has to remember, and I'm sure, I'm sure the court does, that we have a right to a fair trial just like this defendant. Okay? We have gone way too far, way off the mark in, in, in this, I, I, I believe. Uh, the epithet was uttered, considered a context in which it was uttered and which, and which was heard by this jury, Your Honor. What, what more can they want? I think McKinney is cumulative at this point, especially on an issue like this, which is collateral. And if the court disagrees that it's collateral, then it's only marginally uh, beyond uh, being collateral. At any event, uh, you know, we can't uh, be allowed to turn this trial into the trial of People versus Furman, or rather Cochran versus Furman, or Simpson versus Furman, or whomever Bailey versus Furman. I mean, we've heard this word thrown around throughout the courtroom today. I've, I've heard this that, that term more 
by Mr. Bailey than any other white individual I've ever heard it from uh, in my entire life, and I'm sure a whole, there are a lot of people well, that agree Mr. with Dart, that. Well, Mr. why don't you address the legal issue that Mr. Cochran raises, that the only African-American that has been proffered at this point is Mr. Hodge, to say that I am an African-American who was referred to by Mark Furman in this manner. Well, Although I, the record, the record, thankfully, at this to this point, is colorblind as to who's who and what's what. Well, now we know. I mean, I think now the record indicates that everyone else before Mr. Hodge was, was Caucasian. And uh, the defense chose the order of their witnesses. They knew, apparently, I'm, well, I'm, I noticed, I think, I'm, I'm sure they noticed the racial makeup of each of the witnesses they called today. Do we have to have a certain number of witnesses from certain uh, ethnic or racial uh, groups? Having chose the order of witnesses that, that, that they selected, to come to the court now and say, hey, we need to have, we need to have a, uh, an African-American testify to this, I think is unfair. I think it's unnecessary. I think it's cumulative. As I said before, the words came in. We let them come in, Judge. We didn't fight it. You know, we fought our battle in the 352 and the 402s and before the court. And when it came time that, to, to present this testimony before the jury, we let it come. This is enough. But I'm, I'm more interested in Mr. Cochran's proffer that this is the only African-American who is going to be offered, who is going to say that Mr. Furman referred to me in this way under these circumstances. As my colleagues have pointed out to me, if he was so important to the defense, why then didn't they call him earlier? I mean, you, you mentioned to the defense uh, and have over the past several days the issue, the 352 issue, uh, as to whether or not some of this testimony I've, is cumulative. I've given them, pretty, given them pretty good warning that at some point in time it will be redundant. Yeah. Um, you know, you put me in, a, in an awful position when you ask me to argue to you why an African-American shouldn't be allowed to, to, to testify in front of this jury judge. Well, Mr. Uh, Darren, I, I, sincerely, I, I apologize to you for putting you in that position, but uh, you're a professional. Uh, I have, you know, you and I have known each other for years and years and years. I know you're up to it. I, I know that uh, I, this is a tremendous burden that's placed upon you, and I, I don't envy your position but nor do I envy my own. Now you know how it feels. <laughs> Somewhat. Context of white supremacy. Uh, watching the trial will give you some, you know, just small tidbits that you won't get if you just rely on other people's books or whatever. Uh, that whole exchange, right? So that's after the Furman tapes have aired and you can hear the kind of resignation like this. And now they have that, all right, we've conceded. We've taken it on the chin. Furman's a racist. We're not contesting that. Uh, uh, Marsha Clark was in court that day. She's, you know, passing him little sticky notes up there. Say this, say this. Sherry Lewis, white woman. She's also on the prosecution. She's there. She comes up to the podium. She's handing Christopher Darden notes and everything. Why do they have the black guy up there for this one? Why is it we need someone to go and tell the non-white judge why this black fella should not be allowed to testify that Mark Furman called him a nigger. Why is that? Yes, Darden, that's your assignment. Get up there and tell it. And then he has to say, man, you got me the black guy up here. I got to argue that the black guy can't. Hmm. System of white supremacy. Uh, One person wrote in uh, one of our investors, uh, Popular movies of 1994 through 1995, Pulp Fiction, 
still popular. Oh, Harvey Weinstein abusing children. That's why we're reading this. Uh, Shawshank Redemption, Natural Born Killers, Dead Man Walking, Braveheart. Pause right there. Let's go to Mark Furman's Murder in Brentwood. Just going to give you a little snippet quickly. Murder in Brentwood. He writes my body. So this is when he's going back to testify and they've got him under guarded watch. My bodyguards discuss ways of getting me out of the hotel and out of Southern California. I listened and then came up with my own plan. Very early in the morning, we sneak out the back through a fire exit, have a car waiting for me. Then we go to Utah to my friend Kevin's house. From there, Kevin and I will rent a car and drive up to Sandpoint, Idaho. Being the most obvious method of escape, the media wouldn't expect it. That night in the hotel, I had four district attorney investigators with me. I was in a lost mood, sick and tired of everything, disgusted with myself and the fact that I had let down so many people. I had to get things off my mind. Hey, I told my bodyguards, you know, this television has pay-per-view. Want to watch a movie? Sure. Why not? They answered. We got chicken takeout and some beer. Ron and Brad came by and we watched Braveheart starring Mel Gibson, also now an accused racist. At the end of the movie, when William Wallace is strapped down, disemboweled and finally beheaded, it was as if he were being sacrificed for the sins of others. Boy, did I feel a lot like William Wallace. People wanted a sacrificial lamb so they wouldn't have to deal with the fact that a popular celebrity brutally murdered two people. The jury wanted to excuse, wanted an excuse not to vote, to vote not guilty. The defense wanted to cast guilt on others. The prosecution and investigating detectives wanted someone to take the blame for their mistakes. So I was drawn and quartered in the forum of public opinion. At least William Wallace could feel proud that he was a hero of his people. But I had nothing to lull back on except my family, a few good friends, and the sincere belief that I hadn't done anything wrong. We woke up early the next morning, well before dawn, after scouting the area, finding no media, my bodyguards loaded the car, got me out of the hotel, and drove out of town. We kept looking behind us, but nobody was on our tail. We were on our way to Ukiah, and from there, I would be going home. Poor old Mark Furman, drawn and quartered, just like in Braveheart. Back to our written commentary. Chapter 21 sounded black. Number one, Bundy was silent at 1015 and one of them said the dog didn't start barking until 1035. Again, it was all consistent with guilt, but not the prosecution's theory of the case. Heidstra, he was walking on the alleyway parallel to Bundy at about 1040. If the time of the murder was 1035, then it definitely does not give OJ enough time to commit the crime. With all these discrepancies in testimony, how can anyone be certain on the times of the murders? This is critical since the timeline for opportunity is so narrow. Number two, Cochran, he was simply wrong. 
many African Americans do have distinctive accents and speech patterns. Hearing voices at night from a distance without visualization of the persons involved and accurately concluding their race does not seem credible. And with dogs barking in the background, he emphasized that as well. Number three, Robert Hyzinga, OJ's physician. Actually, that would be Robert Shapiro's uh, physician who did the examination of OJ. Hyzinga called to testify about OJ's various ailments, persuade the jury that OJ lacked the physical abilities to commit the crimes. Despite his lingering football injuries, Simpson was bigger, stronger, and fitter than most people in the United States. In light of what we now know about head injuries, CTE, and the plethora of chronic debilitating ailments suffered by NFL players, Tubin's assessment of OJ's physical condition seems absurd. Number four, the climax of Kelberg's examination came when he played 70 minutes of raw footage from an exercise video. In hindsight, this seems hilarious. They took it really serious at the time. Chapter 22, Manna from Heaven. Number one, Cochran had spent his entire professional career both fighting and exploiting racism in LAPD. I'm going to need better explanation of this statement. How do you tell when Mr. Cochran is fighting versus when he is exploiting racism? Question. Number two, Ito ruled that he would allow only two brief excerpts from the Furman tapes to be played. This seems to violate Ito's supposed truth school philosophy. Say it like 20 times. You mean to tell me that you think it's cool to allow in Ronald Shipp, former LAPD, to testify to a dream O.J. Simpson allegedly had, that is relevant until later on you decide, oh, wait a minute, maybe we shouldn't be talking about dreams in here. Forget that, forget that. But a police officer being recorded and talking about fabricating evidence, practicing racism and charging suspects where they have committed no crime, all the rest of it, that, that's not truth cool. That's not truth school. The jury. Nah, you don't need to hear that and then come to your own opinions about if this is relevant or not. We need to censor that. Right. Uh, number three, as was customary, Ito did not allow the jury to see Furman take the fifth. I wonder how much discretion Judge Ito had in allowing the jury to hear this in act. He changed his mind. This is one of the things originally. So the jury wasn't present when Mark Furman played the fifth on all that. Did you uh, plant evidence and all? Jury didn't hear any of that. Originally, he ruled that the jury was going to be instructed that Mark Furman pled the fifth and refused to come back and testify. Then he changed his mind and decided that they're not going to tell him. So again, truth school, somebody who has came in here and testified before you and now there's testimony to contradict what he said. This fellow has come back and took the fifth and we're not even going to tell you that that happened. Disgraceful. Continuing. Number four, the tapes also pointed to larger truths. Maw, men against women, existed. Reminds me of the subgroups of L.A. street gangs, 49th Street Hustler Crips, H.R.A. Gangster Crips. They do have subsets of racist white supremacists. Uh, and he stops there. Uh, if other folks have any commentary, we'll make sure to get uh, folks who dialed in. Uh, since we only have one section left, we should be wrapping up Jeffrey Tubin's book next week. Uh, we should have the verdict, closing argument. The closing arguments are historic. 
I will post Johnny Cochran's uh, the videos for Johnny Cochran's closing arguments. The closing arguments lasted, I think, like a week or so uh, for each side. I think the prosecution, it took about four or five days for them to do all of their closing arguments. Uh, the defense, I think it took about three or four days. Uh, Johnny Cochran and uh, Barry Sheck did all the talking, but it is extraordinary. I think it's about 10 hours or so of Johnny Cochran uh, kind of summing up the whole case. Within that is the legendary, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Uh, but I mean, it is absolutely brilliant. We'll try to play some of the closing argument of Johnny Cochran uh, next week. But yeah, that'll be the end of our book study of O.J. Simpson. Uh, the number again is 206, excuse me, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. We did a little overtime just to get in all the extra. We heard a little bit from Mark Furman's book and the extra audio clips and what have you. Hope you know it has been uh, constructive uh, and Tubin lies so much you have to kind of balance that out and you know get some truth back uh, so let's check in with folks uh, retired firefighter in Florida we missed him first time around and then we'll get all the other folks as well uh, if you all had commentary line should be open retired firefighter in Florida first greetings Gus greetings to uh, everyone uh, I would say my timing probably could have been a, a lot better probably been better that I spoke on the first half. Uh, But I just wanted to uh, state, uh, contribute that uh, from the standpoint of I've spent most of my life around football and around the players. (laughs) I was one of them at one point in time. But but specifically, uh, uh, I've been around uh, guys who played in the National Football League. You cannot be on that level of play and don't sustain injuries, you are going to get hurt. And Mr. Simpson in the 1970s happened to be one of the best and one of the most targeted players upon that level. Matter of fact, I I heard uh, this uh, identification of him being uh, Tarzan. Now, I don't know because that Tarzan was is not was a fictional character, but uh, he was associated as being a quote-unquote workhorse as he was playing in the National Football League because uh, based on his position. And at that point in time, the type of game that they played, he was targeted big time. So uh, that, I said all of that to say that uh, the, he had he's had multiple injuries and and was suffering continuously. I think he was in his fifties. Am I right? When 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 this incident took place, Gus? Forties. Well, he was forty six at the time. Was of he the in murders. his fifties? Forty six at the time of the murder. Forty six. Okay. All right. Uh, at forty six years old, it's only going to get complicated. I think he. I think he only had one real knee. <laughs> the other knee was a lot of artificial stuff in it. Uh, he uh, he couldn't hold his child because he had one time a broken collarbone that required surgery to repair. <laughs> so, I'm, you know, and I've also been on uh, murders of that sort that took place with those two individuals. And 
my observation was the amount of energy that the killer or killers had to exert in order to accomplish that. Now, and I don't think whoever whoever murdered those two people, uh, 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 or, or if it was Mr. Simpson, that he wasn't expecting that this male would be there also. The target was specifically was supposed to be the wife. Uh, and even if even if all of that is incorrect on my analysis, I still would say that what ruined the case for the for the uh, prosecution was the race soldier, was the race soldier that uh, uh, totally ruined the case. And the whole idea is is to place doubt even with the the few white people who was on the jury. Uh, there were white male experts on the, on the defense that I'm sure that convinced them or placed some doubt in their minds that uh, from the standpoint with uh, the white male race soldier about, about the case. They put, they, you know, those white people, maybe Mr. Cochran wouldn't have been able to do it with them, but certainly I would figure the white guys, the white guys on the defense, was was able to convince even the the white jurors uh, about uh, about uh, doubt on that case, and that's all I have to say. Thank you. Much obliged, retired firefighter. Glad we got his commentary in there as well. Not a healthy person, O.J. Simpson, at forty six, encroaching on fifty at the time of these crimes. Uh, let's see, other folks who had a hand up commentary that you wanted to make sure that you got in. Everybody satisfied? I'll make sure I get in my notes and then I'll check in one more time. My notes from the second uh, portion of the readings. This is the last uh, bit of manna from heaven uh, about the audio tapes. Uh, Again, I can I can only emphasize the jury did not get to hear most of the Furman audio. They heard two snippets. Uh, from the tapes they did not hear that long clip about him Furman and his crew beating up these non-white people and this is payback you don't shoot a cop and then we went out and got the garden hose they didn't hear any of that they didn't hear any of that and they didn't hear him plead the fifth Uh, let's see from the second portion of the audio uh, Tubin writes so they talk about uh, the pressure that they're going to uh, exert. Let me check all the way back. Uh, I said, I've said several times, Marshall Clark, crass, uncouth. Tubin says that he's talking to her in the in the hallway, and she says, "The worst judge I've ever been in front of. The worst possible judge for this case. Totally intimidated by Johnny. A total star fucker. Crass, uncouth." all the way incidentally intimidated if judge Ito was intimidated by Johnny Cochran why didn't he allow all of the Furman tapes as Johnny Cochran had requested why didn't he allow the jury to hear oh yeah this fellow Mark Furman actually came back and pled the fifth about did he plant any evidence and some of these other questions racial slurs and such why didn't he share that if he was so intimidated by Johnny Cochran what exactly did he think Johnny Cochran was going to do to him wear more kente cloth 
Tubin writes the section. He says, <clears throat> uh, oh, and make sure you, before I get to that, Peggy York, Judge Ito's wife, she lied. There's so many instances of police dishonesty within this case. They lied on the search warrant. They lied and said O.J. Simpson was going to Chicago unexpectedly. He all of a sudden caught a red eye when this trip had been planned planned weeks in advance. They lied on the search warrant about jumping over the gate. They lied about the initial uh, coroner saying, hey, it looks like it could have been two knives uh, used in this crime. The police officers have lied, not just Mark Furman, there have been so many police lies throughout this case that would include Peggy York lying even about, do you know Mark Furman? If she had just been honest in the first place, we would have never had Lance Ito to complain about. Can't even be truthful about that and your connection to this guy. Police deception in the LAPD and beyond rampant. Next. Uh, let's see. Judge Lance Ito gives his soliloquy about how women, and he means white women in the workplace in a male dominated professions have to deal with this and have to be tougher. He doesn't say anything. All this nigga, this and nigga, that nigga, this and nigga, that he doesn't say anything about man, black people in professional settings have a really tough time or even the tacky minorities in professional settings have a really tough time. He could have just looked out for his own Asian people in professional settings have a really tough time. Now all of this gets boiled down to just man, women have a really tough time that Marsha Clark has had a tough one hasn't she nothing for Chris Darden let's see they bring up Michael Jackson as though uh, black people just cape for Michael uh, for black people just cape for black criminals regardless of what they've done Uh, he writes Uh, His experience told him that organized political pressure to release the tapes had to accompany general public outrage about them. When Cochran's client, Michael Jackson, was under investigation in February 1994, the lawyer had orchestrated a news conference of black ministers to call on Gil Garcetti to conclude his investigation of the singer. On August 28, 1995, August 28, Marshall Washington, murder of Emmett Till, important date, August 28. Much the same coalition was reassembled this time to call for Judge Ito to release the Furman tapes to the public. The heavily attended media event was spearheaded by Danny Bakewell, head of the L.A. civil rights organization known as the Brotherhood Crusade. They're in uh, they're dramatized in the FX series this March. And uh, Danny Bakewell is in the ESPN documentary Made in America. All of this to say, what are Danny Bakewell? Johnny Cochran and the black people who showed up at this rally. What are they going to do to uh, Judge Lance Ito? You don't release the tape. You release the tape, so we're going to beat you down. We'll riot again. I don't even remember the riots doing anything to get anything for black people. Did they fire anybody as a result of that? Like, come on. Powerless black people stomping around. Yes, that always gets white people to behave. Uh, Let's see. Having stung Cochran in print, Ito still could not stand up to him in person. What are you talking about? Uh, let's see. It did have a big impact on the case, even though, as you said, I have never heard white people in mass 
totally flipped. Like they had been defending Furman and he's awesome. He's great. Blah, blah, blah. After those tapes. All right. We concede Furman is a racist. Like that is unprecedented to have white people just totally. We're not even going to argue. We're not going to defend. Nope. He's a racist. You won. OJ is still guilty, but we won't even argue. Mark Furman is a racist scum of the earth. Worst person ever like that is that alone should be reason enough for acquittal. But I mean, it's a long list of reasons why there would be an acquittal here. But I mean, it did have a huge uh, impact on the trial and the prosecution. I mean, if lots of people comment about how Marsha Clark looked really beaten down by this point in the trial, everybody for the prosecution looked really beaten down by this point. Like loser team is over here for sure. Uh, Let's see. Oh, and then I'll get, he says, Tubin writes, ultimately, it is not surprising that black jurors decided to punish the police for its sorry past and that, alas, O.J. Simpson turned out to be the undeserving beneficiary of this ignoble tale. All of that, in my view, is Jeffrey Tubin practicing racism in many ways. This was not an all black jury. I cannot say that enough. That's the same silliness that Howard Stern said. I don't know if we have honorary black people. There are individuals classified as white on this jury. Did they all of a sudden become black because of their participation in this trial? There are non-white, non-black people on this trial. Did they also become honorary black people? That's one. Tubin sat here who wrote an old book. He knows it's not an all-black jury, so that's one. Is there an excuse for why the white people and the non-white, non-black person also decided to acquit O.J. Simpson? They also wanted to stick it to the police? That's one. Two, as I said, you could pick a variety of reasons as to why the jury came to an acquittal. You could just start with the prosecution had a really lame case, not, ooh, they just were in love with O.J. Simpson and, ooh, they wanted to stick it to the police for Rodney King and, ooh, Mark Furman was a racist. Some of those things could absolutely be true, but the bottom line, the burden of proof was not met and it wasn't even close as I said last week we could have never had the Furman tapes and we would have had the exact same result in my opinion the defense could have rested when the prosecution rested and never called a witness Tubin didn't even seem impressed with the defense witnesses right he said they were prosecution witnesses Hydra and uh Hazinga, right? He said they weren't even good witnesses for the defense. So I don't think they needed them. They could have rested after the pro- uh, the prosecution rested, but I am glad we got the Furman tapes for posterity. Did any other folks have commentary they wanted to make sure they get in? Yes, sir. Um, yes. Um, less than a year after this trial, June 1996, future Tony Cochran client debut album Jay-Z was called Reasonable Doubt I mean in 1996 there was no doubt in any black person's mind that this was a total um, sham of a a trial this guy was innocent Um, did you guys just hear this the the, the lead officer like just to put it in context let's take everything away from race, OJ, everything out of it. The lead officer in a murder investigation pleads the Fifth Amendment when asked questions about the murder investigation. 
in particular if he planted evidence. The judge should have held him in contempt immediately or declared a mistrial immediately. You can't do that. That's, I mean, other than in this system, you can't do that. Um, and the judge does it, in my opinion, because Furman's testimony could have incriminated his wife, who was at one point his on, on Furman's boss, and would have probably held up her pension, you know, so he was probably thinking on um, getting. I mean, it, it was so much. It, this case would have been uh, um, totally uh, retried afterwards because it, it, all of this would have been held, all of these tapes, everything would have been placed because this was all illegal. Um, well, I shouldn't say it, it was unlawful and another judge would have ruled differently. I believe. The L.A. district attorney and the police, total incompetence, have not proved motive, intent, any of that. A uniformed police officer as he bragged 3,000 pages of investigation of police misconduct about him, unqualified already educationally, makes it all the way to lead detectives in New York City if a high-profile murder happens. They have a special group of cops that handle that called Major Crimes Division. They take the lead. I assume this is L.A.'s version of Major Crimes. You let this guy make it to Major Crimes. And then they have to do a total cover-up because look who they let make it up the ranks. And they just had 3,000 pages of documents to get. So the police, the DA, the judge working together to cover all this up. The LAPD allowed him to make it through the ranks, hit his record, and Judge Lance Ito helped him bury it all by only allowing two excerpts out of the 31 excerpts. How does a judge allow the lead officer once again, in a case, a murder case, to plead the fifth. It's over after that. That's It's, it's over. It, it makes no sense. Uh, once again, I believe this is a cover for his wife, and I'm with my mom. Jury didn't even hear that uh, in terms of Mark Furman pleading the fifth. Didn't even hear it. One of the more important moments of the trial, in my view, more important even than the audio where you can't even talk. I mean, Effley Bailey said that unprecedented. When do you see a police officer go to take the stand and they got to bring an attorney with them to answer? Like, when does that happen? Much less you then got to plead the fifth. I'm not going to answer anything like, whoo. I think I told retired firefighters some weeks back, like, man, there are many moments within this trial where I would have motioned like I move that the charges be dismissed like uh, this is the, the quote from the book controlled indignance the whole way through every day incidentally uh, this was pointed out in other points I don't think it came up in the book but uh, they could have declared a mistrial there were many points where that was mentioned like you know Lance Ito's judge Ito's wife seems like she lied that might be a reason and he might have to recuse himself and lots of different points in here was an uh, attrition of jurors you know we're running out of jurors as well but for the misconduct aspects and did judge Ito's wife lie and those type of things if there was going to be a mistrial there it was uh oh we could be looking at double jeopardy this could mean OJ Simpson could walk and there is no retrial that we just botched it and oh well he now 
you don't even have a verdict as to whether or not he did this or not. And it's because of our incompetence or ineptitude or whatever race it, whatever, whatever you want to talk it up. So it was not uh, as simple as just, Oh, we'll get a wee trial and get a do over. And then we cannot call for him and do this correctly. It was, Ooh, we might, uh, we might totally botch it and have wasted all this time and energy. And then we don't even get a verdict uh, when, and they had just got a mistrial in the uh, Menendez case. So that when they did have a, they did get a do over in that one. That was for different reasons, but yeah, it was uh, nothing looked good. Nothing looked good for the prosecution heading into the, the home stretch of the case. Looks like they knew where things were going. Uh, any other folks have comment they need to get in? One one last one last thought. Uh, I, I heard you said that uh, that, that the jury did not hear most of. Uh, the uh, enforcement officials, the race soldiers' testimony. But at this late date, any white person that wanted to hear everything about what what this uh, race soldier said is available. Uh, And my question is, (laughs) do do you think white people would be embarrassed by by what they hear, uh, you know, from uh, Mr. Furman? I doubt it, but just a question just comes up in my head, you know, that uh, on whether or not white people would be embarrassed uh, with uh, his uh, behavior, his entire uh, career, and even before his career, actually, because he, I believe he was a killer, uh, of course, when he was in Vietnam. Uh, but, uh, yeah, would, would white people be embarrassed by uh, his behavior as a, quote-unquote, law enforcement officer? I mean, he's the best-selling author. Um, I think uh, O.J. Simpson, (laughs) when he attempted to publish uh, his book, uh, If I Did It, like white people balked and griped and complained and this is a disgrace and all the rest of it and, you know, wouldn't allow him to publish the book. If white people were upset and outraged and ashamed and felt guilty uh, about Mark Furman practicing racism and what he said on those audio tapes, they certainly would not allow him to become a best-selling author. Uh, and then he gets to go on television and, right. you know, be an expert uh, to talk about different uh, police cases and, you know, talk about different court trials and that sort of thing. So I think if, if one, just in general, I don't see any evidence that white people feel bad or are guilty about racism in general, like on a personal level, any of that, but certainly no, not exactly. With, uh, Mark Furman, they might give lip service to some of that, you know, and oh yeah, that's reprehensible. And, you know, I don't even, in fact, in terms of assessing bling, even if I was a white person and I felt, you know, OJ Simpson did this, right? Like he did it and he should have been locked up at minimum. Why not me? that Mark Furman ruined it. Like if he hadn't been racist and all the rest of it, I don't even, you know, really hear that. You heard a little bit of that from Kim Goldman, but that's not the Goldman stance. Generally, the stance is generally they played the race card. This is absolutely ridiculous. And Mark Furman didn't plan the evidence. And I mean, it's totally, I don't care if he said this, even like I said, they don't even address like, wait a minute. He didn't just say nigger. He talked about planting evidence. He talked about, I don't like it when these niggers are with white women. He talked about beating up people who, I mean, it was way beyond just he made a few what they call off-color remarks. Like, way beyond the way that they sanitize it and just 
Uh, I guess that might even be another component of racial focal pointing where they try and minimize and sanitize things so it doesn't sound so bad. That right there to me just, no, it's not that we feel guilty or bad about this. We just do what we normally do, which is lie, conceal, and just do everything that we can to get back to O.J. Simpson killed those white people, and that's all there is to it. In other words, he practiced thought, speech, and action as a racist, white supremacist. (laughs) Guilt ain't nowhere in the equation. I could be wrong. Haven't seen any evidence, though. Like, Mr. Fuller is not a best-selling author. Mark Furman is. (laughs) Right. Jeffrey Tubin is, too, so... We got everybody. Mm-hmm. Can I add one thing, Gus? Mo in Dallas. Yes, sir. Stay warm. My goodness. Hope you have safe water to drink. Oh, it is tragic down here. But, well, I, I won't write. I'll get Surrounded by white, believe it or not. Surrounded by white. Um, um, I was not... Uh, privy to the information that the jury did not hear Furman's testimony, um, and, and, you know, in its entirety. I, I did not know that, um, like, at all before I heard today's segment, um, which furthermore um, validates that there is no possible way that Mr. Simpson committed this crime. Like, if, if the jury didn't hear that and still using logic concluded that this man did not commit this crime, like, it is like it's just it further solidifies that the individuals that do believe Mr. Simpson committed this phenomenal feat are just fed and 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 unknowingly fed propaganda and I'm just I'm just so surprised by that that's all I wanted to add um, thank you for your concern about my conditions we are warm uh, I mute my line man Lots of water. Stay warm. I hope, you know, it gets back to normal Texas weather sometime soon so that all this will just be, you know, a bad memory from the season of the Rona. But that's what that's why we did overtime today and have kind of slowed down. And I've tried to, you know, pull in a lot of extra resources. Well, one, Jeffrey Tubin is lying a lot. So that's why we got to have a lot of extra sources, too. But. I feel like so many, and I guess to Thomas in New York's point, some other people's point, like, man, how is it that so many black people who seemed at least like maybe back then thought O.J. Simpson was innocent? How is it that so many black people have had their opinion changed over the last quarter century? And I think what you just talked about right there, I think either you have a lot of people, if they were alive at that time, they have forgotten the details. A lot has happened over 25 years O.J. Simpson doesn't quite seem as important now as way back in 1995. And obviously you have a whole new you know, generation of people. They weren't even born uh, when this happened. So, no, I didn't see. Or they were really young. They were children. I said, hey, I was a child. I wasn't uh, a newborn. But you got a lot of folks, either they were not born or they were very young. So they weren't paying attention to when all this happened. So they don't have any of that information. All they have heard is. Oh, that Mark Furman fellows on TV, they haven't heard any of the Furman tapes. They don't know any of the details of the trial. You just watch the FX series, watch some of these. Uh, and they got so many trash content, like trash books from Jeffrey Tubin and 
trash movies who killed Nicole Brown Simpson and just ever I don't know it's not even anything I could point you to where you would read or study and be like wow OJ Simpson didn't do this you know so one or two things here or there but I mean the vast majority of the content you're going to think OJ Simpson committed these crimes so if anything when you have people who are not well informed they don't know the details it can be very easy to confuse and confound them about what happened I didn't know that either what Moen Dallas just talked about that the jury they didn't hear most of the Furman tapes when people come with that accusation that you know the jury just got inflamed they didn't even hear most of it they didn't hear Mark Furman get on the stand and say he plead I plead the fifth did you plant any evidence I plead the fifth did you lie about racial I plead that they didn't even hear any of that they didn't even get told afterward that any of that stuff happened and then to come back and say yeah they were just a bunch of racists oh dumb idiot black jurors just trying to stick it to the LAPD because they love Rodney King and OJ Simpson Okay. Uh, I read in Louisiana. I think another reason a lot of people um, don't think he's innocent is because of the legal situation he got in later trying to recover um, his uh, purloined uh, possession. Like, I do believe I could be incorrect, but I thought he was trying to get back his trophy and some other stuff. So the way they look at it, too, um, if they, like what the gentleman just said, some non-white people thought he was innocent, now they think he's guilty. You know, I think it's also because of that incorrect activity, if he really did do it, I don't, I didn't keep up with it. Frankly, I was like, not mad about it myself, but I think that's another reason why people may have been swayed um, opposite to what they believed before. Much obliged to Irene. Uh, important point too, because I think a lot of these big projects, at least the recent uh, big projects, the uh, uh, ESPN documentary, I hate calling that a documentary, the propaganda piece from ESPN Made in America, and then the uh, FX series. Again, Jeffrey Tubin is in both of those projects, which came out the same year, 2016. Uh, Mr. Simpson was in greater confinement at the time when those uh, films came out. So, and that's the way that I think both of those, that's a part of the big conclusion that of course he did it. And they played the race card and cheated and got away with it. And that no count OJ is where he should have been all along in prison now. Cause he was still locked up at the time that those projects came out. So absolutely. I think that that did have a huge impact on a lot of folks, them just being able to put those pictures up, no count, you know, inmate and, get it all along and got what he deserved finally yeah I think that did help sway opinion greatly over the past uh, up until 2017 anywho uh, we will wrap it up all done next week uh, we will get the closing arguments uh, the response uh, it will probably be a healthy amount of jury bashing uh, next week uh, because I don't think there are any more witnesses so it'll just be the closing if it doesn't fit you must man Johnny, I didn't watch. I didn't watch. I didn't know the closing argument. I just knew the little spiel. Doesn't fit. You must have quit. But wow, it is amazing. The closing argument from like 
10 hours of, you know, somebody talking in court generally would be like, this is really lame. It is amazing. It is a master clinic on words. He does so much with definitions. Let's be precise about the words that we're using. He goes through and summarizes the case. Johnny L. Cochran Jr., the brilliance. We'll try and obviously we can't play it all, but we'll try and have a little brief snippet, give a highlight of his closing argument and uh, the response after the trial. Wow, it has been uh, a hoot. Orenthal James Simpson. We will wrap it up next Friday. Uh, we'll be here tomorrow, neutralizing workplace racism, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, we'll check. Keep your emotions in check, man. You do not want to be Christopher Darden having people plotting how to use your emotions against you in your career. Uh, much obliged for everyone tuning in. I hope it has been worthy. We, man, we got people who don't have water, don't have electricity, snow. We were just snowed in days ago. Like all of the craziness, the Rona, everything that is happening in the world, man. I hope we have not just wasted time. For several months now, reading about O.J. Simpson, uh, O.J. Simpson. Hopefully, this has been of some uh, constructive value uh, for folks tuning in and help them get some better understanding of white supremacy, racism, and uh, at minimum, one of the most talked about, if not the most talked about, court case in our lifetime in the U.S. Easily. That said, sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. We will need our brain computer to solve the problem. Uh, in addition to being sober, let's be buckled. If you got to go out, if you got to go out, I know for some folks that is a dream uh, to be able to drive someplace right now. Uh, if if you are able to get out, drive, whatever the case may be, be very alert, uh, be attentive to what and who is around you. If anybody is being loud and hostile, this is not a time to confront. We're not doing verbal confrontations with strangers. You should be thinking this fella, this gal could be armed. White person, non-white person, whatever. In fact, if it's an individual and they're being rowdy, you should be thinking they could be armed and they could have a whole cadre with them. Also armed, ready to commit crimes, violence. If you didn't leave your residence ready for lethal combat, let's get the step in. Make a phone call if you need to call enforcement officers or whatever. Do that as you are exiting, but be real risk averse as we continue with all of the <sighs> zaniness that we're dealing with currently. Uh, all of that said, we're sober. We're buckled. If you're driving, you are not on the cell phone. Uh, again, we need all of our attention to be safe. Uh, and then, two, we want to try, and try to do everything we can to minimize contact with the mark Furman's Mark G E D Furman of the known universe buckled sober, not on the cell phone. That said creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed.
I'm a victim, brother. Bravo. You're a victim. Uh, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.